No subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. And on this show, particularly tonight, no excuses for why it's been so long since we've had Micah Hanks on the program. It's unbelievable. I actually mentioned it last night, and I was going to look, and then I got too scared to look. That's, uh, that's how long it's been. It's been years. So tonight it's going to be a fun conversation. Really looking forward to this. Micah Hanks, of course, is wildly popular. He's the host of the Grillian Report. Uh, and he's the author of a bunch of different books, but most specifically, where are they here? Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule. That's the last time we talked to him. And, of course, then he's had the UFO Singularity and uh, the Ghost Rockets, so two interesting books. And he's touring all over the place. I don't know how he does it. I really don't. We're going to talk, talk about that because I, I don't know. I think I would have an ulcer after, like, six weeks, so I'm interested in how he can keep up. But it's going to be really, really fun. Welcome back to the show. It's long overdue, Micah. Sorry it's been so long. I'm kind of like uh, I'm like an online like Quaker or something anyway, so I barely communicate with anyone. So uh, welcome back to the show, though. It's been, it's, uh, been too long, man. Well, it has, but I'm glad however long the wait it is, and I understand that you know you have to get it in line to be able to be on this show. So I've been standing, <laughs> wait, kind of like the kid in line with his parents at Best Buy, you know, uh, right around the holidays. So I, I know I know the drill by now. I'm just glad to be here, brother. <laughs> oh man! Somehow Greg Bishop keeps being able to cut in line, though. I'm not sure how he does it, but he uh, he sneaks to the front, <laughs> to the front of the line when needed. Uh, it's it's really great to have you back, man. And uh, we we were down in Dallas together, like I was saying, and. Uh, we didn't get a chance really to sit down and have this long talk, so I'm really looking forward to uh, chatting with you tonight. Um, I don't even know where to begin, really. Let me see here. I had a couple of notes, but I, it's kind of an odd sort of, well, tell me a little bit about what, tell me about sort of what's been going on in your mind lately. You know what I mean? Like what's, because back when I talked to you originally, you were into this uh, mysticism and the molecule and the magic, as I said, and it was kind of like, but you've changed quite a bit in the many years since I've talked to you. I've, in a way, it's interesting because, uh, you know, you've really evolved in a lot of ways, and I feel bad that <laughs> I haven't talked to you along the way. So, you know, where are you at now with all this stuff? How are you feeling with all this, and sort of what's what's driving your interests now? Well, those are fair questions. And i got to say, by the way, you know, you mentioned the paramania thing, you and I down there together in Dallas. Um, and it was funny because, I mean, we did – we had all the, the photo ops, and, you know, we were, you know, you know, ribbing each other and having all the fun, you know, drinking, you know, together in the evenings and – 
you know, dining out and all that stuff. But yeah, you're, it's funny because as long as we've known each other, I think that that little event, that little event was still bigger than I thought really that it would be. And although that was cool, you know, there was a lot more going on than just, you know, you and I and a couple of others hanging around. So, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, such yeah. a life. It was, it was still a lot of fun. So, oh, it was you know, fantastic. That, it was an incredible time. And, uh, of course, you know, going down there to the uh, Dallas Motorcade together and, uh, you know, being in the, as a matter of fact, folks, people out there listening, you know, Banal and I toured the Sixth Floor Museum together, where, of course, yes, you know, Lee yes, Harvey Oswald had taken, he had purportedly taken the famous shot. We can maybe talk about that a little later. But, uh, but that said, so, you know, he and I have been doing a little adventuring together here. And um, as far as where I am and where my mind is, it's funny because my, the, the first book that I wrote called Magic and Mysticism of the Molecule, yes. uh, that that book, uh, the, I think the first interview that I ever did, which actually, no, no, the first interview was before that book was even published, was on your show. It was on Banal of America. Yeah, we were talking about and, the Grailian Report, just the blog. I don't think you had, you, mm-hmm. I don't know if you had the show yet. I did not have the show at that point. No, and at that point, I remember you were really one of the one of the very first serious podcasters in this genre who was really, I mean, really doing it. And I remember year after year. Everybody expected it was going to be Vinal who got best podcast of the year, and so you know, really, it's kind of funny. But, <laughs> from who? From, you, from Paul Kimball. <laughs> well, but, you know, hey, but, but I'll tell you what, coming from that source, you know, I think Paul Kimball's fabulous. He's he's a great guy. I like talking to him. I do too. Him. It's, <laughs> it's like a completely ar- kind of- <laughs> it's like a completely arbitrary award. It's like it's like if Donald Trump calls me amazing or something. It's. <laughs> <that's amazing. laughs> Oh, you got to be careful saying that right now. I know, <laughs> I know. Well, you know, I have to be topical. To, <laughs> yeah, well, in the last 24 hours, this went from a strange election to, oh, and by the way, there is now a very good chance this guy could be our president. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, what, no, what, the odds, like, got really crazy in the last, like, 24 hours. I was pretty amazed. Uh, yeah, I was like, whoa, everyone dropped out. Oh, shit, it's really happening. I was sure they were going to steal it from him. Yeah, I don't think that anybody really saw this coming, and and there yet may be uh, some strange, uh, you know, hijinks that will change what we were all expecting and what we all, you know, presume was going to happen. You know, again, we'll, we'll keep our eyes peeled for that. But as far as the way I'm looking at things, you know, again, like you'd mentioned, I came on your show and we talked about magic, mysticism, and the molecule so many years ago, and I remember I was asked by another interviewer shortly after I came on your show. They said, you know, what will your next book be about? And I thought, well, I just finished this one. Why am I thinking about the next book? But I said, my gut tells me I'll try and offer something to the discussion on UFOs. Now, at that time, I certainly had some ideas about UFOs. I think I was already a blogger for UFO magazine. But really, that rabbit hole, Banal, as as I think you know, and our good friend, you already mentioned him, Greg Bishop knows, I think we've all kind of been on this weird I don't know what you want to call it. it I, I, I started to say journey, and then Exodus came to mind. Uh, because Exodus I think, is, yeah, that's, a, that's an apt word, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I like that one better, and I'll tell you why. Because for me, I think we all come into UFO studies going, ah, oh, wow, cool, strange things seen in the sky. Maybe aliens, maybe extraterrestrial life forms, you know, that are not just life forms, but intelligent ones traveling to Earth in highly advanced sophisticated craft that may be capable not only of traversing you know, space but time as well. For all we know, there's an awful lot more going on here. Before we start sounding too much like a Robert Heinlein novel, I want to say that really that's where many of us never get beyond. You know, We never get beyond the whole, and therefore aliens. 
And then there are those of us who, like Greg, you know, he wrote Project Beta, and he really goes down that rabbit hole of not just that, well, UFOs may represent this or that, but that UFOs as an ideological concept in the public consciousness have been utilized, and knowingly so, by intelligence agencies to steer the perceptions of certain individuals, especially those who have had the ability to communicate to the masses that UFOs may be the Shazat. And it is, it is very, very likely at times been utilized for, if not psychological oper- uh, operations, uh, you know, sociocultural uh, changes and the implantation, I would even say further, rather than what some people would you know, uh, talk about with abduction lore, you know, implants and things. I would say the only thing that's really truly been conclusively implanted is the meme of a quote-unquote ET reality as a result of the mythos that has been built around a very uh, unusual uh, subject that is UFOs. And so I couldn't tell you exactly what this represents, but I think that with time, uh, we who (laughs) find that we can stick with it naturally become a little more skeptical with time. And that doesn't mean that we're not believers that there is some phenomena. I certainly think that there is something. But I think you and Greg and I and many others, uh, and even more recently than that, well, actually, no, because you and Greg and I were together just a couple weeks ago, but Back in February, just a couple of months ago, it was still recent, Stanton Friedman and I were out in California together. And even Stanton, we were sitting there having lunch in Riverside, and uh, Stanton says to me, and this is the most incredible thing, he goes, Micah, I'm a skeptic. You're a skeptic. We're all skeptics, but there's a difference between being a skeptic and a debunker. You know, a debunker (laughs) says, don't bother me with the facts. My mind is already made up. And I thought, and I've heard him say that before, but... But he's right. We all do become more skeptical. And I, I can tell you from my private correspondence and conversations with Stan that even Stan's more skeptical on certain things than he used to be. And, oh, um, yeah, he's tremendously skeptical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you don't think Stan Freeman's skeptical, like, you got to listen to him some more. <laughs> well, listen skeptical. to him specifically talk about guys like, for instance, Robert Lazar, you know, or Bob Lazar in the Area 51 thing. I mean, you know, Stan has at times been as skeptical as any of those, you know, who work with Psycop. And I don't say that in, in, in a way to demean or to discredit the psychop people because you know I actually find a lot of good work done by our friends in the skeptic community and there was at one time been all a time when the skeptics and the advocates I say that rather than believers they did used to in the UFO community work more closely together these days sadly we've got this kind of a polarization that I think that social media and again the firmly um, attested to memes of ufology uh, help uh, in, in aiding the growth of that great divide, I don't really think that it has to be there. And what I'd love to see is the skeptics be skeptical and not cynical, and the believers be advocates without being blind in their faith. And I think if we could come a little closer to the center, so to speak, like I think many researchers used to be, we all be a little more skeptical. We could all, I think, be better researchers. And that truly, brother, answers your question. That is where my mind has been. That's where I've come from and where I have arrived, and here we are. Mm. Very, uh, you gave us a lot to think about there. <laughs> well, I, I'm biased, of course, because I'm on the advocate side, but I feel like we've done our parts. The skeptics who are more, I feel they're more uh, trenchant than the the, uh, the advocates for paranormal, because they just, you know, they're genuinely mystifying and baffling cases. Any true student of this doesn't even care about the low-hanging fruit, but if you go to, like, the skeptical side, and you were like, want to talk about these subjects, they always just throw out the low-hanging fruit, and they're like, oh, your stuff's all garbage. And it's like, no, but here's stuff that's really interesting to me. I know that that low-hanging fruit's garbage. And they just, they just stonewall you, you know. It's very frustrating. 
Well, it is kind of frustrating. And I, I think that one of the real big problems that I see with the skeptic uh, community today, and, and when I say that, I'm not talking about people who are skeptical in a general sense. I mean people who have built their ideology around the broader social movement of skepticism, which strangely, uh, skepticism has kind of become concomitant with atheism just as well. And so we have a lot of people who, in the skeptic-atheist community, are not just people who are advocates of rationality uh, and, and being more rational in our, in our uh, you know, inquest into purported strange phenomena. We find people who are evangelical in their advocacy of skepticism and atheism. Yeah, uh, I think some of the great skeptic minds of our last uh, you know, few decades, Martin Gardner, for instance, he also, and he knew that his colleagues, some of them would castigate him for this, but he also believed in a creator. You know, uh, he said, I can neither offer good evidence you know, for the existence of a creator than I can offer good evidence that there is no such thing. And he says, in my agnosticism, unfortunately, I have to uh, you know, accept that in my heart I feel that there is, and in my mind I cannot prove. Uh, and nonetheless, I maintain that the absence of, of any good evidence does not prove to me, to a considerable fashion, that there is no such thing as a creator. And therefore, in, as a matter of faith, I am a skeptic to my core, but I maintain that there is a good and a strong possibility, and one perhaps which I would like to adhere to in belief. Now, I'm paraphrasing what Gardner said, but again, there have been others like him. And a, and, and a new claim, although I, I must maintain particular skepticism about this claim myself, but there's a claim from another evangelical, an actual evangelical uh, today, uh, who had been a friend of the late Christopher Hitchens, the political firebrand author of books like God is Not Great, and he had tried to argue that Hitchens had in fact considered uh, theism toward the end of his life, and if not Christianity, at the very least considered whether there was an afterlife and perhaps a God within it. Um, you know, I think that it's natural for us as humans to go back and forth and to struggle with, well, I am so rational and I believe that with facts I can I can be led, but in the absence sometimes I still have this hunch, this sense, you know. Maybe Hitchens had that struggle later in life just as well. You know, and I don't think that detracts from his skepticism by any means. But, you know, again coming back to the modern, you know, belief of skepticism, again I do think at times skepticism is a very dogmatic thing. And it has not been so much rationality as it has been individuals who have picked an ideology that has been built around a social movement of skeptical atheism. And, and that's kind of the problem we face these days. And just to give you a quick example, real quick, too, Benal, mm -hmm. one case, that um, a UFO case, and a classic one, that I think is very exemplary of the kind of thing I'm talking about here with you, um, is the famous incident at Exeter. I mean, we all know that story, yeah? Mm -hmm. We all talked about yeah, in, in, in September 3rd, 1965 is really when it kind of began, but there were subsequent sightings of something in that area around that time. Uh, it was an 18-year-old boy, Norman Muscarella, who was walking home, but his intention had been to hitchhike because he'd been visiting his girlfriend who was across the state line, and he was coming uh, back to New Hampshire. And he observed a series of lights in the forest nearby, which had been followed by the lights rising out of the forest and a large object coming and moving close enough to him that he was frightened and he jumps into a ditch face down and hides. And as the object drifts over, he runs to a nearby farmhouse, starts beating on the door and he's crying for help, but nobody happened to be home at that time. So he runs back out to the road. And as this object is still apparently in the vicinity, he flags down a pair of 
a motorist, a couple who had been driving along, and asks them to take him not to his home in Exeter, but to the police station nearby. So he's taken to the police station. He gets down there. Uh, there's an officer, Toland, Reginald Toland, who'd been working the desk that night. Toland knew Muscarello, and he goes, look, I know this kid. He's, he's not crazy. He seems like he's really seen something. So he gets on the radio, calls out to people. The first responding officer, cruiser number 21, was being piloted by, or I should say being driven, rather, since it wasn't an aircraft, but it was driv- uh, driven by a gentleman named Eugene Bertrand. And Bertrand uh, agrees to go back out with Muscarello to the location, and they get there, and they initially don't see anything. They start walking through this field in the direction of the forest where Muscarello first saw the lights, and lo and behold, they begin hearing dogs barking. There are horses nearby whining, and then the lights appear in the forest once again. And the lights emerge from the forest and fly toward them through the sky. They're seeing the lights apparently attached to an object, and rather famously, Officer Bertrand at this point drops to one knee and lifts his pistol and points it. Now, a lot of people at this point would say, why the hell would you do that? I mean, this thing, <laughs> you know, it's probably not going to you know, do, help you very much to try and blast this thing out of the sky. So he puts his gun away, thinks better of it himself, and he and Muscarello go back to his car, and he radios to other officers in the area to see if someone can come to the, to the location where they are and and stand with them and be a witness. And sure enough, there's a response from an officer named Hunt, and Officer David Hunt arrives, and he joins Muscarello and Officer Bertrand, and they all observe the aircraft. They say at, at one point that the object was only about a football field's distance away from them, and that it was no more than 100 feet over the field. It rocked back and forth, and it had a sequence of red lights that were going around the exterior of what appeared to be a rim on it. And furthermore, Hunt noted in a, in a subsequent interview with uh, the uh, journalist uh, John G. Fuller, who had written a book about this, called Incident at Exeter, really put it on the map. But he says to uh, Fuller in an interview that at one point we saw a B-47 bomber fly overhead. Now, the reason I'm telling this story, to be brief, is that in 2011, uh, the skeptics Joe Nickel and James McGeeha, who I've followed their work for years and really actually appreciate what they do, but in this instance, and there's one other that comes to mind where I've differed with them as well, in this instance they had said that it was quite obvious that all of the officers had observed a KC-97 tanker, which was being used in a refueling uh, of various aircraft in an Air Force operation that was taking place that night. And although the operation should have ended much earlier that evening, the fact that the B-47 was seen by Hunt and the other two at the scene obviously indicates that there were still Air Force aircraft operating in that area at that time and that the operation was not over with. In fact, this aircraft may have been fueled by the very object that the three men had been looking at. The only problem with this is that, well, of course, all of the men said that there was no sound produced whatsoever by the object that they observed. Had it been a large aircraft, one would presume it should have made some kind of noise. The second problem is the fact that they repeatedly, the two of them, emailed the Air Force. The Pentagon couldn't apparently come up with any kind of explanation. And finally, when they did get a response from the Air Force, the Air Force told them, you know what? Based on the description given, we can't give you any kind of a clear answer for what you observed that night. And that letter actually, uh, I don't think just came from you know some sort of a low-ranking officer. In fact, I think that the, uh, the, the letter had come from the Secretary, uh, Secretary of the Air Force and had been penned by specifically a Lieutenant Colonel John Spaulding. But the third and final thing that was most damning is that Officer Bertrand, who accompanied Muscarello to the site, not only had Air Force experience, but had worked directly 
with operations that involved refueling and his actual work in the Air Force when he was with the Korean, he was serving in the Korean Army, uh, or rather, he was serving in the Air Force during the Korean War. I apologize. Uh, he had worked yeah, with Yeah, come the on, KC- Mike, get your facts straight. Yeah, obviously, <laughs> I, I don't know this. <laughs> he had worked I'm with KC-97 <laughs> tankers, and he had, if he had worked with KC-97 tankers, and this is the funny thing, too. When I went back and reviewed John G. Fuller's book, on the second page of the first chapter of that book, it mentions that he served for four years in the Air Force and had worked with KC-97 tankers. Now, my question to you, dear listeners, and to you, Banal, as well, why in the hell, if this guy was familiar with these aircraft, would this be the first proposed explanation that skeptics Magea and uh, Nickel would offer? Now, to his credit, Magea worked in the military as well and had experience on these aircraft. He recognized, based on the descriptions, that this was the likely aircraft. But I'm saying the thing is, is Magea recognized that aircraft. Shouldn't Bertrand have recognized it as well? And furthermore, when Hunt later that night joined them and they all saw the B-47 fly overhead, why would he tell John G. Fuller the difference between the aircraft we saw and the thing that was hovering over that field was like night and day and there was never any sound produced? Why couldn't the Pentagon, why couldn't the Air Force determine what it was? Nickel and Magea, as they concluded their investigation, and as they wrote in Skeptical Inquirer magazine, had actually said, and this was incredible to me, they said, we believe this solves the so-called incident at Exeter. However... They said, as to the weeks of subsequent UFO reports in the vicinity, they were beyond the scope of our investigation. And I'm thinking, guys, did you really, gentlemen, and I have a lot of respect for Nickel and Magea, but I still maintain, did they really offer the best explanation? In this case, I simply don't think that they didn't. There are times where our skepticism gets ahead of the facts. I think this was one of them. Yeah. That's that's, that's ridiculous on, like, eight levels. I don't understand. I think they they just pick what they think is going to be the most uh, digestible by their audience, because this was in, like, a skeptical magazine, right? So mm-hmm. they just pick the one that they think that the that their audience is going to think, well, that's Occam's Razor. That makes sense. That's the reason, without even without assuming that they're not going to do the legwork to see if these people actually got it right. It's very uh, disingenuous. That's the word. But I had a lot of questions that came up while you were talking, so let me... Let me see. I'm afraid we're going to like throw them all at you at once. First of all, dude, I noticed this in Dallas, too. You have a marvelous uh, recollection of facts and, and the way you told the story. It was like you knew all these characters in the story. I, I, uh, I don't know if I've been in this too long or I smoked too much grass in college or what, but I can't remember any details about a lot of this stuff. So what, how do you do it, dude? How do you remember so much stuff because folks like i said down in dallas mike was telling stories like this just as detailed and i was down there watching i'm like what the fuck how does he how does he know about thomas muscarella this is so <laughs> weird like i don't feel like it's the only name i really know from exeter but uh you know so what do you just have a fantastic memory for these things well i have to say it wasn't thomas it was norman muscarella well but... there you go see i didn't yeah exactly my the, case in point i'll tell you the reason I know this one, and it, and it is the first that comes to mind, there, the truth is, my good friend Jim Harold, I uh, write articles for his website from time to time, uh, com, and I had written an article about this case because the truth is, is I was late. I've been so busy with so much going on, especially since we got back from Texas. And I had um, decided after researching this case for some time, I had uh, – I had initially looked at the skeptical interpretation and thought, well, maybe they've really figured this out, and I thought that Nicola and Magea had done it. That's why I decided to go, and I have an extensive library of books, and I think that's the other thing, too, is that 
I learned when I was in college, if you wanted to do well on a test, that you didn't just study. What you needed to do is when you were studying, you need to write down the core ideas that you have the, uh, that you have gleaned from what you read. Because uh, And there are studies that show this. If you write down what you have read, you're like 80 to 90% in some studies more likely to recall, at least in the short term, what you uh, had written. Now, I don't know if you know 10 years from now I'd be able to recall all the facts from this case as I just did, but what I had done within the last couple of weeks is that I had not only uh, decided to and, – and again, I'm skeptical of the skeptics at times rather than just saying, well, they solved it. I know a lot of – I've got a lot of friends in the skeptic community that will just say, well, this case was solved. Didn't you read in Skeptical Inquirer? And I said – on this one, I said I did read I, – I do think that these guys have come up with a good uh, – maybe a plausible explanation, but I should just fact check it and just take a, another look. The two biggest issues that I had were the fact that Bertrand had worked with the KC-97s and they described specifically that there was no noise. If they had watched this thing for a, a, a decent period, even a KC-97 that was moving toward them or away from them at any time, if it was in their general proximity, they should have heard the aircraft, and they said that there was no noise – associated with this object whatsoever. That and the fact, of course, that, uh, you know, as I mentioned previously, the Pentagon and the... Uh, Nicola Magea referred to it as being the Pentagon not being able to solve it. Uh, the actual uh, dialogue that they shared was with the, the uh, U.S. Air Force, which, again, this would have fallen under the purview at the time, being 1965, of Project Blue Book. But anyway, that said, obviously I can retain a lot of those facts, but it is fairly fresh on my mind right now. And... I will attribute again to, if you want to be able to remember names, dates, faces, places, if you'll write down what you are studying, it will greatly increase your memory capacity. And as a writer, since I do often write about these things by virtue of my studies, I naturally do write them as well, and therefore I think it helps with my memory. So when I can sit down and I can recall these kind of things, the, the secret for me has always been, as a studier and a chronicler and a researcher, that if you write it down, you'll remember it better as well. And I think that probably other authors, not just yours, yours truly, several of us probably are able to do that. But thank you for noticing that I do try very to make things. Very impressive. impressive. Write by, by hand, you mean, like on a piece of paper? <laughs> no, <laughs> like well, we used you know, to do in the old days? In my experience, if you actually do jot down notes by hand, it seems that you are able to re to recall it better. But often when I'm writing things, I'll – for instance, um, I was uh, asked recently to come on a radio program and to talk about secret societies. And they had had me on this radio program because uh, they had heard me on other radio shows talking about secret societies. But I decided that that day, just as a refresher, I would do some study because I had the day off. And so I sat down. I spent about eight or nine hours studying secret societies, and I took around 7,000 words worth of notes, which I think maybe a quarter of. We discussed on the radio show that night, but I later uh, retrofitted this into an article, which I have at my website, micahanks.com. And if people go to the that website, micahanks.com forward slash blog, you can read all my articles. And this article is a brief history of secret societies in the Western world. So, you know, uh, it's kind of funny because for me, there's not really a very distinguishing line between my writing and my research and the kind of things that I talk about on radio shows or even on my own podcast. And it's to that extent, banal. maybe, I don't know, maybe yours is like this too, but I feel like my podcast, rather than being a host who interviews people, my podcast, The Graylian Report, is a living uh, representation of my ongoing research. And it's like, yeah, I talk about yeah, what I'm accurate. into. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I just talk about what I'm into, and people follow along if they like it, and they seem to. 
but, you know, I think that's cool because it's kind of like your show, too. You have very interesting conversations and very different kind of guests. And, unfortunately, there are so many shows that emulate shows like yours and, and you know, mine and, of course, the, you know, the, the classic talk radio late-night shows that address these subjects. And, you know, there's plenty of regurgitation. But, you know, if I just wanted to go out and see vomit, you know, I'd go to the bird sanctuary and watch the mama birds feeding the babies, you know. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah, yeah. We have... We, we we have plenty of emulators. I mean, I'm, I like when I see people doing different things. So, yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of me, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, what the other thing that kind of came to my mind? I don't know. I think I think you and I discussed this uh, off the air uh, when we were talking before Paramania, or maybe it was right. I know for sure. I think I talked about it with Greg. Was uh, and I know I mentioned it actually with Soraya and uh, Josh. Uh, I'm supposed to be on the midweek show of. Uh, What's um where the road goes? But uh, uh-huh. I guess Soraya's posting at any moment now, or some day now, or some 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 time now. <laughs> but the the mm-hmm. the thing that struck me recently was the idea that the uh, the black triangles, you know, everyone sort of associates those with like uh, stealth type uh, secret government craft and everything else. And it's like now that we can see what these drones can do after a few years, we really need to like start to reconsider a lot of UFO cases. Uh, I'm not talking about Exeter specifically, but just sort of the idea that, like, these, oh, it was a ball of light, and it performed in ways that, like, it, uh, you know, a normal aircraft couldn't. Well, it, it now, if you did that now, it would be like, oh, that's probably a drone. So it's like maybe we need to look back at these things and realize that the government definitely had to have had them, like, 25 years before now. So, you know, it's, uh, I think, I think it, I think there's something to, uh, consider, you know what I mean, that the that these cases that, I don't know, that the drones were this hidden presence that no one really knew about or considered until uh, now, and these old cases may need to be taken a second look at. Well, I think you're absolutely uh, right to to look at the way that drones kind of fit into all of this. You know, the funny thing is, is that in the modern context of drones, which again are, are uh, you know, remotely controlled aircraft, uh, typically uh, aircraft uh, which are um, are utilized by the military, uh, but there are, of course, the civilian drones that exist today now as well. Uh, what's yeah, like funny, millions what, of them. I mean, yeah, and actually, it's funny because um, my band, uh, we were out performing one night recently, and I would mentioned offhand that uh, somebody had had a drone that they were flying over a swimming pool, and I thought, you know, I'd actually like to buy one of these sometime fairly soon, and my brother kind of retorted at me, oh, that's a very practical thing to buy. And I said, well, it is if you're interested in the kind of research I would want to do, because what I would hope to use a drone for would be what many people do. They attach a GoPro to it, and they fly it into areas where, you know, one can't normally access very easily. And one of one area I've been long interested in is Brown Mountain, North Carolina, where there are purported uh, nocturnal illuminations that occur and which are seen. And I've got good friends who are going to be down here later this month, uh, formerly of Bell Laboratories, who have had a long time uh, – interest in the lines. It's a hobby of theirs, but nonetheless, you know, there's certainly guys with a background in engineering who lend a lot of interesting um, perspectives to whatever may be occurring. And so we've long, you know, gathered together and tried to take photographs. And I just thought, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to stand a distance away with a camera with a long, you know, a telephoto lens? Wouldn't it be great if we could actually fly a drone with the camera attached to it and go out there and get right up on these things, see what they look like up close? You know, that's one cool thing about drones is they present technology that may help us solve certain mysteries uh, that have existed for a long time. But I think that the drones themselves kind of contribute to the mystery as well, in a sense, because as you 
and pointed out there, Tim. Uh, what we have is we have a long history of anomalous phenomena and strange things seen in the sky, and now we are seeing, again, these these unmanned aerial vehicles, which in some instances are very reminiscent of the kind of things that have been reported in certain UFO reports over the years. Like, for instance, you know, there was the famous Tehran UFO incident from the 1970s. I think it was 1976 in which there had been, you know, pilots scrambled to try and pursue this thing, and there was this aircraft or object rather it really kind of looked more like a diffused kind of a light uh which was capable of traveling i mean well past the speed of sound is what they'd said now i don't know of any drone that might be able to do that or should have been able to do that several decades ago but we certainly know of different kinds of aircraft like the xs7b i think uh, that the uh, navy uh operates the predator drones are more famous but really i mean any of these different kind of aircraft are capable of some high maneuverability they would not match the description, but certain aspects of their capabilities certainly do match um, certain UFO reports from the past. And so I, I wonder sometimes, could it have been that there were certain kind of drone technologies that utilized maybe some sort of sort of an illuminative shielding or something along these lines? Maybe this technology has existed for much longer than people realize. It's not that complex, but what it is is that to a person who is unfamiliar with that technology – Something that appears very exotic like that, uh, despite its 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 basis in fairly prosaic technologies, even for a few decades ago, something like this might have the apparent appearance of being far more anomalous and weird than uh, it actually was. And could it be that there have been drones or something similar that have long constituted UFO reports? I mean, hell, the ghost rockets that were being reported over Scandinavia in the 1940s, actually 1946 specifically, it was just a breath after the war, but really before the modern UFO era as it began in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold's sighting and then subsequent to that, the Roswell incident and whatever else. You know, the birth of the flying saucers in America, as it were, but these ghost rockets that were being reported over Scandinavia, I mean, they were described as being you know, bullet-shaped or missiles or torpedo-like they matched very much the known technologies, and really Klaus Spahn and others. There's a new documentary out about the ghost rockets, by the way. And, I've, of course, I wrote a book oh, about Oh, yeah, this. yeah, I heard about that. Chris Savvy is, uh, and Klaus Spahn, right? I think we had Klaus uh-huh. Spahn on a long time ago. Yeah, 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 those ghost rockets. He, yeah, Klaus and Anders Lilgren, uh, I think, actually, is how it's pronounced, a uh, Swedish name. So, you know, forgive my improper pronunciation if it were so, but... What they they've worked for a long time to document reports of things, not just from 1946, but over the years, a number of similar reports of bullet, torpedo, or rocket, you know, or missile-shaped aircraft, which is really part of what inspired me to write a book about it. They're still reported today, uh, and the Aviation Safety Reporting System, which is maintained by NASA, uh, still has a number of reports of near uh, mid-air collisions with these kind of aircraft. So the point that I'm making is that. Many people say, and they think of drones as being a new phenomenon. Look, military bodies have used drones since the 1930s, and that's a matter of fact, in the sense that they were unmanned aerial vehicles that were remotely controlled. And a lot of the time they were used for target practice and different kind of things like this during military operations. But there are pretty obviously some other kinds that exist, which have either been kept off the books or which are not presently accounted for with you know, current knowledge of military uh, operations and, and uh, technology. So, yeah, I think that probably if we look back more and more as time goes on, we'll begin to find that a lot of the things that were extremely strange and seemingly unexplainable probably were technologies of our very own, very similar to what we're now seeing and recognizing more widely as drones today. Exactly, exactly. Someone, 
Well, I, I kind of like got on someone in the chat room because he said uh, he he said sort of in quotes, yeah, I saw this thing that split into four separate objects and hovered over my car. Uh, it was as big as a bus. Yeah, you saw a drone. I don't mean that kind of thing, folks. But if you're if, if I'm talking about an anomalous light at night in 1995, very well could have been a drone, especially if you were near like an air force base or something, you know. And the Air Force, they're not going to tell you about it. They're not going to say, oh, yeah, it's a, this thing we're working on. It's like a remote control little thing. They're not going to say that. They're going to be like, oh, we don't have any idea what you're talking about. So I think it's entirely plausible, especially the more well, mundane yeah. reports. You know, I'm not talking about the crazy ones, the good ones. Well, exactly. That's the thing is that uh, coming back to what the person in the chat room had said, see, that's, that's one of the things is that there are people who have strange experiences and who see strange things. And... One of the issues I have with the modern skeptical approach is that, again, you can't just allow for a, well, okay, this person saw something strange. We don't really have anything that quite fits what they described. Uh, so I guess what we're going to have to do is try and deconstruct this case, and almost inevitably what happens is a person has been in the mind of the skeptic. They've been looking at a star. They've been looking at just a commercial aircraft. Now, look. I'm not so naive as to think that the majority of UFO reports are not actually simple misidentification of commercial aircraft, advertising planes, blimps, you know, celestial phenomena, weather balloons, and all these kind of things that people loathe to associate with UFOs. But the simple reality is that the majority of things that people see that they cannot explain are prosaic phenomena observed under unusual visual circumstances, okay? That is just the reality. If anyone would like to dispute that, uh, you know, I would recommend that you read the book by um, Alan Hendry, who had worked with the Center for UFO Studies back in the 1970s. In 1979, he'd written a book called The UFO Handbook that shows just how easily things like advertising planes and some of the aforementioned phenomena can be mistaken for things that seem very, very different from an advertising plane. But that said, there are still reports that describe things that are so bizarre uh, that I don't think that any of these kind of prosaic phenomena can really explain them. And so as a problem that I see, especially among skeptic circles, is when you get a good multiple witness encounter. Several of us stood out in the parking lot, and we saw it was dusk. It wasn't dark. We could clearly see the shape of the object. This thing was bell-shaped. It hovered over a field. It dropped what appeared to be little sparks of, like, streamers of light, whatever. You know, people do describe things kind of like what I was just discussing right there anecdotally. And yeah, I think I heard you, a story like that. Yeah, yeah. I've I've heard dozens of stories like that. And the thing is, is that then a skeptic comes along and says that in likelihood Venus would have been visible in the sky at that time of night, and even at dusk should have been visible. Those who had gathered together and were looking at Venus were so perplexed by what they saw that their minds built a fantasy around the phenomena itself, and they led themselves to believe and shared this mutual mental aberration in which a bell-like object dropping lights appeared instead of merely a point of light in the sky, which was absolutely, without question, Venus. You know, it's like, to hell with what you say you saw. We're smarter than you, and we have to demean you by saying that it couldn't have been anything more than a very simple celestial occurrence like this. And that's the thing, is that some of these cases cannot be so simply explained as a damn star or a planet off in the sky someplace. Some of these cases are exotic enough and the descriptions are good enough from enough people, multiple witnesses, under visual circumstances that are conducive to a decent observation being made in a serious, sincere, I think, and accurate recollection of the events as they transpired, that you cannot demean 
the witnesses and their testimony by offering something stupidly simple as an explanation, and yet time and time again it is done. And, and that's the problem, I think, is that with our skepticism, some of our skeptics have gotten so skeptical that they actually resort more to cynicism, and they allow this kind of misrepresentation of the data to lead in an effort to appear smarter than everybody else, which really seems to be something that, sadly, fuels many modern skeptics. Cynicism and this, I'm holier than thou, and I'm much better at Google than you are. I can find the facts, and by God, I can debunk anything. You know, we do need to be willing to say sometimes, we don't have to leap to the conclusion of saying E.T. or aliens are little green men. But I think as good skeptics, we've got to be comfortable to say, you know what, I don't know. I can't prove it was this or that or anything else, but I do know in, in this instance what the, what the details seem to indicate I cannot explain simply, and therefore I don't know. And there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know. In fact, more skeptics should. Yeah, no, they don't. Yeah. That's like they refuse to say I don't know. They, they, they're they like a dog with a bone. They'll, they'll just foist up any crazy explanation and be like, well, that's good enough. Like That's good enough is really their answer to I just don't know. That's the problem, you know. It's uh, it, I have no patience for these skeptics in a lot of ways, you know. They just seem really bullheaded, and uh, they're really, like I said earlier, they're really good cases. If you bring them the really good cases, they can't really do much with them, or they or they box them up like the Exeter's case. So it's that's case in point, no pun intended. It's like <laughs> right there, you know. Give them a good case, they can't, they can't, they come up with some garbage. And these are two like prominent skeptics, so they uh, they failed the test. Now, what do you yeah. think of this? I, 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 you posted an article at Coast to Coast, which is exciting, and um, and and you say, you know, I, I totally agree with the, the 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 idea here that you know we need to, uh, well, not not we, but the the UFO field shouldn't rely on the government to get the answers. I've shouted on the show before: show your work to ufology. That's kind of my slogan it's like you can't ask you don't ask it for the answer you have to show show your work do the work and solve it yourself so but the challenge i think uh with that with that proposal to is is like there seem we need more people more qualified people i guess doing the work and the example i'll, I'll give is uh i was talking to greg last night and sort of and and this is just a, I sort of proposed this theory on UFOs that like maybe if, if you're in a personal crisis, you have like a mental block and something paranormal happens and it comes from your mind and that causes you to not like immediately, but you know over the next like week or two, come to grips with whatever you're struggling with internally and uh, we would have no idea because no one's really like looked into this. That's the that's the question I'm presenting to you, so we don't rehash that idea, that theory, because that, that could go anywhere. But the idea is how, if even if that's the case, right, how, no one's, no one's going to try, no one's trying to prove that. Like, we don't have the right, we need more academics looking at this from angles like that, or, or you know, we need more, how do we get, sort of, how do we jumpstart that sort of, like, intellectual uh, investigation of this, do you think? That's a good question. Uh, you know, that's been one of the problems that we have faced uh, for so many decades. Uh, and I say only so many decades, although really the problem goes back much further. I mean, it really goes back to you know, the dawn of history. Um, you know, we had, we had uh, you know, some of the famous uh, theoreticians and the philosophers of, of ancient times and ancient Greece 
arguing for the banning and the burning of one another's manuscripts. You know, uh, more more recently, of course, you know, uh, we, we, we've had the famous feuds that have occurred between uh, Sir Isaac Newton and some of his contemporaries, uh, you know, namely, I guess, uh, uh, of, of, of more modern uh, kind of dialogues that have occurred. We've had the philosophers and the scientists uh, that have that have had their, their breakdowns in communication, which have fostered debate and sometimes not just discussion, but actually beyond discussion, it goes into, I think, kind of dismissiveness, um, where, for instance, Massimo Pigliucci of the of the philosopher camp uh, argues strongly, as any good philosopher of science would, that, well, philosophy of science is still relevant. Um, and, you know, modern contemporaries of his, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, of course, uh, Sir Stephen Hawking, uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy, <laughs> and certain others, they kind of argue that really philosophy may be getting in the way. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is that if we can look outside the UFO field and we can see that there are similar problems where there are those of a scientific mind who are being entirely dismissive of an entire separate field of study, we realize it's not a problem that's innate solely to UFOs, i.e. that academics, you know, we want astronomers, we want physicists who are willing to get involved, chemists who will go out and do field work, go to a landing site. Let's solve the UFO mystery and let's get scientists behind it. They won't do it. Why? Because well, it's a fringy subject, and they know that they, you know, it's career suicide, or potentially they're, you know, thereby, uh, if they do become involved. Well, you know what? It's not a problem that is solely relegated to UFO studies, or Bigfoot studies, or ghost studies, or whatever else. I mean, there are within, you know, the physics world and with the world of, you know, philosophy and with mathematics, there are these same breakdowns and divides that occur there just as well. So this seems to be, to me, very much, but all a human problem. Now that we've established that. How do we become uh, more scientific in our UFO research, or more importantly, how do we get more scientists involved? Um, I'll, I'll reference uh, a documentary that at one time was available on Netflix. Uh, may not be any longer, but uh, it was a documentary about Bigfoot. And in the documentary, uh, John Bendernagel, who is a academic who has risked his career and his name. Uh, and put uh, it behind the study of Bigfoot, he argues in the documentary the very same thing you were just describing. He says, we need more serious scientists. We need more good academics who can get out there and who can do this kind of work. And the reason why is because he said the weekend warriors, they should be rec you know recognized and they should be respected and appreciated for what they do. But he says, unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of people who get out there trying to crack this nut that is this apparent phenomenon, these Bigfoot creatures, whatever they may be. And these people aren't trained in the sciences. They aren't trained in, in field work. They aren't trained in how to collect data. They aren't trained in how not to contaminate the environment while trying to gather data. We need more trained scientists. And see, Bendernagel uh, assigns to the problem the same question that you have asked. We need more scientists. Now, how do we get them? Well, of course, with a subject so seemingly strange as Bigfoot or UFO research, scientists aren't willing to put their name and risk their reputation by becoming involved. At what point were there subjects that became so uh, that were relegated to the lunatic fringe so badly that scientists wouldn't even involve themselves or engage the subject? How could a scientist, for instance, involve themselves in UFO studies? Which is kind of funny because I had a skeptic friend recently ask me why they had noticed that I, along with many others, have begun to favor the term UAP rather than UFO. And I said quite simply because UFO seems to indicate, as the acronym entails, unidentified flying object. But 
but UAP, unexplained aerial phenomena, does not necessarily seem to indicate an object, a craft, or structured kind of an object. It could account for any number of things. And I think that really to understand UFOs in the broader sense has to take a look at various different kind of disciplinary angles. Natural phenomena, which might constitute, for instance, what J. Allen Hynek would have called nocturnal illuminative phenomena, or actually he called them, I guess, nocturnal lights more simply. Like ball uh, lightning. Also have yeah, like ball lightning. But see, the thing is, is that some literature, especially among our, our English researchers, seems to suggest, and, uh, and Mark Pilkington talks about this a good bit uh, in his book Mirage Men, but there have been plenty who have discussed this sort of a thing. There is some literature that indicates that uh, certain uh, illuminative phenomena that would appear, again, as a light at night, like a glowing sphere, i.e. your ball lightning or your earth lights or your earthquake lights, whatever, some of these same phenomena may appear uh, in the daylight just as well, but since, of course, they don't appear as brightly lit, due to the fact that there's daylight present, and hence, you know, of course, the illumination quality of these lights is diminished somewhat. Uh, there is some literature that suggests that ball lightning-like manifestations might appear as spherical orbs or similar shapes. Uh, or, I'm sorry, I think I said spherical. I, I meant to say that they were metallic. So metallic, although many of them are spherical metallic shapes. So uh, the question is, is, could this explain certain sightings of apparently metallic structures that people have described seeing in the daylight. In other words, as far out as it sounds, could certain UFO phenomena uh, that appear to have been representative of some sort of a physical object seen in the daylight, could there still be a natural explanation for some of that just as well? So for me, UAP really kind of covers a broader range of possible phenomena that may constitute UFOs, although I don't think it can be denied that some of these things are not natural phenomena. They are objects or aircraft. And that, that seems to be, based on the best cases, quite evident. Uh, but how do you get a scientist to study those? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a very tricky kind of a thing. So I think that with regard to your question, Manal, we do need more scientists. But the problem that we face isn't so much that UFOs, uh, or rather ufology, is unscientific. It is that science will have nothing to do with UFO right. studies. And, and UFOs have to be recognized as being more than just, quote-unquote, aircraft piloted here from someplace else by little green men. I mean, we're talking about a broad range of phenomena, which is also probably natural as well as it is certain structured craft. This, this is not something that I don't think a scientist can honorably or credibly study, and we have to really try to break down that stigmatization that has been attributed to UFO studies so that scientists can involve themselves in a clear, coherent, and credible way. Right, right. It's going to take a, it's going to take a sea change. You know, you'd think you'd want to be that because I think the UFO phenomenon is so varied that there's all different sorts of things happening. You'd think you'd want to be that one dick scientist that's like, I solved <laughs> UFOs by like being able to reproduce, you know, daylight ball lightning as a little metal sphere or something. You know, because that, well, that would that, solve UFOs though, to me. No, you know? I know, but they, you know how they are in the media. They'd be like, UFO solved, you know, and then all of us would be like, what the fuck, man? That's not. That's only one <laughs> tiny part of it, dude. Stop! Stop! Everyone, stop! You know, then we get too late. <laughs> oh, exactly. And see, that's exactly what we've seen them do. You know, abductions now explained by an obsc once obscure phenomena now well known called sleep paralysis. Look, you know, here's the thing. Yes, sleep paralysis, which I've experienced numerous times in my own life, and every time I have known it was sleep paralysis when it occurred. Never was I confused by it. I knew exactly what it was. 
But the thing is, is, could it be that there are people who were unfamiliar with what was happening and that they couldn't explain it and that they thought that they had a spiritual experience or an abduction kind of an encounter or some sort of an, a ghostly encounter? In likelihood, yeah, this is quite quite frequent. I'm sure that there are people still today who are unfamiliar with the relatively esoteric literature associated with sleep paralysis and who have experienced it nonetheless and weren't sure what they were experiencing and were probably too afraid to really talk about it. All they knew is that something fucked up happened to them. Right. That's all they knew. But here's the thing. Is I love how the media says, and thus, now we can explain abductions. Now we can explain ghosts. Now we can explain everything by people who aren't able to move when they awake immediately after a nap or a, a deep sleep. Okay, so Travis Walton, you know, when, when he was out there <laughs> yeah. in the woods with his buddies back in the 70s, and they see that craft hovering, you know, according to their story, and I've met Travis. I've had lunch with Travis. We've talked about everything but UFOs, and that's how you really, I think, begin to really get to know somebody is once you can sit down and talk with them and kind of get a feel for how they are. He's not sitting there. He's not an evangelist trying to shove down my throat his experience. He wants to talk about music and politics and stuff. I've never gotten the impression from my experiences with Travis Walton that he was one of these hucksters that's just trying to push stuff down somebody's throat. And I couldn't tell you either that he was laying in his bed that night and merely imagined the light outside his window when they came through them, you know. No. I don't think that sleep paralysis explains what happened to Walton. And and some skeptics might say no, and no one ever had to say that. Well, what it does explain it. Let's look at what Philip J. Class explained that story uh, by utilizing. He had claimed that Walton, of course, had, had an interest in UFOs prior to the experience. Yeah, that is true, in fact. He and his brother both had. They had had a pact between them in which it had been uh, agreed that if one of us had an opportunity to get close to one of these things, we're going to get as close as we can. There had purportedly been a family cabin someplace and that they had uh, tried to you know, hide out in the woods or something like that for several days. And that in likelihood, the entire thing was a great big hoax. Okay, well, taken by itself, maybe we could look at this kind of a scenario and say, okay, well, class maybe makes a fairly credible case. The problem, however is that class does this similarly with other people just as well, the famous Valentich disappearance. He'd never interviewed any of the family members. He merely presumed and speculated, speculated that, yes, Freddie Valentich was probably smuggling drugs or was hiding something. <laughs> well, you know, and, and I remember it's funny because when I spoke to Rhonda Rushton, who had been Frederick Valentich's girlfriend at the time, I asked her, did Philip J. Class ever contact you and interview you or any of the family members? No, 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 no. No, when he when he similarly debunked uh, Father uh, Gill's famous UFO sighting from Papua New Guinea uh, from a number of decades ago, uh, when he was interviewed, not by class, that's for sure, but by Jerome Clark in Fate Magazine in 1978, Father Gill chuckled and said, you know, if Mr. Class had what what um, what Jerry Clark did was he actually read to Father Gill what Clark or, or rather what Class had written about him, and he said. He laughed, and uh, the priest said, if he wanted to know what I thought or what I'd seen, he could have just called and asked me. I would have talked to him. You know, Class was kind of a repeat offender in the sense that he never reached out to these people. I doubt he ever interviewed uh, Travis Walton either. He would build these speculative scenarios, which, quote-unquote, let's put our air quotes up, folks, explained these cases. And in every instance... It was always the case that this person was up to no good. They were trying to fool somebody so that they could get money. They were trying to do something you know, nefarious, vile, dodgy, you know, dark, dangerous. 
You know, these people were just liars. These people, in every instance, are just liars who are trying to get something out of making people believe they'd seen UFOs. What's really deplorable, class didn't do this, but others have, since the death of Betty Cash and Vicki Landrum, the two primary uh, witnesses to the famous Cash-Landrum UFO or the Dayton UFO incident from 1980 uh, in Dayton, Texas, there have been people who have cl- gone so far as to claim that the purported damage that, that Betty and Vicky had suffered uh, from their close proximity to that aircraft had been actually them laying under a heating lamp with a piece of, of large uh, cardboard or paper with holes punched in it to present the appearance of burns that the object had caused. Uh, one skeptic had further asserted that uh, Betty Cash had, had drank like cleaning fluid and nearly killed herself to to feign the uh, appearance of being violently ill when she would go and talk to the Air Force. And what? I asked, That's just crazy. Uh, well, it, 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 you see that all of a sudden these ridiculous stories and these speculative narratives begin to be spun. And so I was, I was uh, actually uh, talking with, with a fellow researcher about this a little while ago. And uh, and his, uh, Kurt Collins is the researcher. He has the Blue Blurry Lines website. Um, he, he's probably one of the most knowledgeable people about the Cash Lander incident. And I asked Kurt about that. I said, Kurt, nobody's dug into this case in recent times more than you have. Is there any evidence whatsoever that suggests Betty Cash laid under a heat lamp with you know a piece of cardboard with holes punched in it? Did she drink any cleaning fluid? And Kurt said, look, Mike, I know. He said, I'm very skeptical too, but he said, that's just made up. That is absolutely made up. When skeptics go so far down the rabbit hole to come up with these, to create, I mean, it's brilliant fiction. They're creating ridiculous stories, going to great extremes to try and explain. And in every instance, what is it that these people are doing? They were motivated because they were trying to get money from the government or for somebody else or from the National Enquirer. You know, you start to see a bit of a pattern. You know, class did it. And what's really cool is actually... Uh, I had called him on this. Of course, he's long gone now. But uh, And I'd said, you know, he was the very one who had speculated that UFOs could be explained through things like ball lightning. But at the time that he made that explanation or created that, you know, concocted that explanation, so little was known of ball lightning, he was doing nothing better than offering a speculative explanation for an unexplainable. And I remember that I brought that to the attention of Robert Schaefer, who is, uh, you know, kind of a, a protege of classes, and of course he's still very active in the UFO community. He's got a great new book out called Bad UFOs, which looks at UFO phenomena very skeptically. I, I've, I'm, not, I'm not frequently in touch with him, but I, I have been in the last couple of years in touch with Bob Schaefer, and I, I don't agree with Bob all the time, but I think he's a, you know, a good researcher. It's someone who, again, he wouldn't be involved in UFO research, skeptical though it is his approach, if it weren't a meaningful subject to him in some capacity. And I, you know, again, I definitely, uh, you know, uh, recommend people check out his book. But that said, uh, it was brought to Schaefer's attention what I had said about class using a speculative theory to try and quote-unquote explain UFOs. And Schaefer said, I completely agree with Micah. And Micah is right. Class was wrong. He didn't offer any better an explanation by speculating and really, he should have known better. That's what Bob Schaefer said. And well, if anyone would like to reference that, that, yeah. And see, that's the thing is that many of us as skeptics and skeptical thinkers, we do recognize that there are other skeptics who are way too speculative. And frankly, they just make shit up in their attempts at offering explanations. You know, So 
So, you know, that's the other side of the coin, and that's the big problem that I think we face is being good researchers. We have to realize when whatever our quote-unquote ideology or belief is, are we allowing belief to lead rather than good facts? we got to spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the Internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens! What kind of radio show is this? Their stories are more outlandish than the idea of a UFO. That's the hilarious part. You know, it's like these ladies, these ladies like concocted a crazy heat lamp thing with cardboard and holes in the eyes and drank bleach and shit. Like, dude, what are you, you know, or they saw a UFO. It's like, I don't know, I kind of feel like the UFO one sounds more likely, dude. Like, why would these ladies do this? You know, they didn't get anything really out of the whole thing. They suffered terribly. Yeah, and what kills me is that, again, I'll I'll point these kind of things out to my skeptical brethren, and I'll say, do you not realize that these certain skeptics have been as speculative in their own endeavors? And and then I'll have the, the my debunker friends say, okay, then, so what do you think it is? The little green men, and they, they'll get really angry. I mean, they'll get flustered. Yeah. Therefore, <laughs> therefore, then it's aliens, huh, Micah? And I'm like, look, if you know anything about me, you know, which obviously you don't if you're going to try and accuse me of saying aliens, if you know anything about me, it is the that is the antithesis of the argument I present. I don't present a thesis because that's the problem that the UFO advocates often, I think, fall into. Uh, the, the, the problem with their ideology is that they tend to say, well, if we can't seemingly explain these things, therefore it must be something unexplained. And therefore our speculative line of thought is that, you know, the most likely unexplainable is aliens. And, uh, you know, my dear friends, Richard Dolan and a few others, when I was in Eureka Springs recently at the UFO conference there, you know, Richard had kind of been giving this lecture on the extraterrestrial hypothesis uh, updated, you know, for for the the modern era. I respect, let's just be very clear, I respect Richard a lot, and he's a good friend. He's a good guy. He's a good buddy, and we love to catch up. And if, God forbid, we have a moment at a conference where somebody's not, you know, coming up and talking to, which we always love to do. We always, you know, we're very social at these events. It's great to meet people. But God forbid a moment arises that we have five minutes to ourselves and we can buy a beer for each other and sit there and hang out and talk. But when Rich and I do, we, we, we relish being able to hang out and have dinner and stuff. So it's no criticism of him. I just want to say, though, that, you know, I saw him giving his lecture there in Eureka Springs about the, the ET hypothesis updated for the modern era and I'm seeing him go through all these different hypotheticals of how extraterrestrial technology might reach Earth and what the implications may be. And I'm thinking by the same token, forward-thinking and open-minded though it is, this is just exactly the same thing. It's purely skept- uh, or rather purely speculation. So yeah. you know, the point is that among the most erudite, the staunchest skeptics, I think many fail to realize uh, that they are... Are you there, Micah? Well, we lost him. Uh-oh. Let me see if he got disconnected. No, he's still there. That's weird. Micah, can, oh, he's call dropped. He'll call in in a minute, folks. He'll call in a minute. Let me do shout-outs to the people in the chat room. Uh, Flapdoodle, Jim Lydica. Jim Lydica's the man. He's like my, uh, he's like my, uh, my sound engineer. He keeps... <laughs> He keeps an eye on the sound. We can blame him uh, for Micah dropping off the show for some reason. Uh, (laughs) 
Let's see if Mikey got back on. Not yet. All right. So Jim Lydica, the sound engineer, who he, it's probably his fault uh, that we lost Micah. Uh, Ray Toa. I can't really pronounce that correctly. That's that's a Paramaniac right there, Ray Toa, though. She was uh, she was at Paramania. Rogan, also a Paramaniac. He was there down in Dallas. And uh, Steve Ray, of course, he's the he's the uh, he's the big Kahuna of Paramania. So he was down there in Dallas. And uh, Zero That, who I do not know, but is uh, a frequenter in the chat lately. So that's good. Let me see if uh, Mike is back. No, not yet. Well, I sent him a message on Facebook, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully he wasn't taken out. And he read it, so he should be calling back soon. But let me think of what else is going on. We got Mike Clowen tomorrow night, 10 p.m. Eastern time. It's going to be a good one. Uh, he's got this owl theory involving aliens that uh, I don't know too much about just yet, but he's going to lay the uh, smackdown on me and tell me all about this owl theory, and I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, yeah, that'll wrap up the marathon week. So it's actually gone by a lot faster than I thought. It's been interesting in a lot of ways having a show every day because, oh, good. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you how it's been interesting in a lot of ways having a show every day because Mike is back on the line. So we'll, see, we'll save that for another moment. Here he is. Are you back? I think so. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. <laughs> Don't worry, dude. I, I managed to do a roll call in the chat room. That, that kept my mouth going for a few moments at least. So And, and plugging Mike Clellan tomorrow night. So, well, of yeah. course, and but he, he's going to be a fabulous. Speaking of Richard Dolan, I think I was talking about Richard Dolan before we got disconnected, and mm-hmm. you know he has really helped Mike Cleland a lot with the presentation of his new book. Which again, you know, uh, a lot of people I would be frankly uh, uh, not surprised if they considered owls and UFOs and the connection between these two things something kooky. But Mike is um, a very well uh, grounded and very. Uh, interesting researcher he's also a good friend of mine like dolan is and as you can see from the way i talk about these kind of things but all uh you know i don't maybe agree on all points with all of my friends in the community but we surprisingly are or maybe not so surprisingly at all we're all still friends it's fine to disagree you know that's the thing is that i don't understand when this kind of cult of personality came about that you know the skeptics thought that they had to become mortal enemies and attack and degrade and and dismiss every person who had an opposing ideology to theirs. It's just, it's kind of silly. Mike, you know, he, he again claims that he's had personal kind of, I guess what you might call abductions. But again, I would just maintain that, skeptical though I am of that subject, he's one of the most legitimate and grounded of those experiencers I've ever met in my life. And uh, and speculative, though, Richard Dolan's theories about UFOs are. I mean, he's also one of the most well-spoken and erudite guys. And I'm going to tell you, if you want to understand international politics, if you want to understand international politics, talk to Richard Dolan. Mm. So that's that's the thing is that I think it's really good sometimes when people can be friends in this community, and we don't agree all the time. Because when you disagree, you debate, you talk, you engage in dialogue. And when you you have that kind of meaningful um, dialogue, you learn. And that's what exactly. this is all about. You'll have a good time with Mike tomorrow. You will. I'm looking forward to it. And the yeah, I agree with what you're saying about the speculative thing. I think it's funny because I think you probably take the same tact as I do, where it's like when I hear about a UFO case, it's like I really the last thing I want it to be is a UFO case because you can't even do anything. So I, in my mind, you know, I try to place different scenarios into it, where it's like, okay, could it be this? Could it be that? You know, and it's funny because the skeptics they come at it. 
from a from a like a parallel line, but it almost a nefarious one where they're like, I'm going to do anything to make sure this isn't a UFO. You know, where for where from my perspective, it's like I hear a story and I'm like, okay, how did this? How is this not a UFO? How you know? It's like. It's, to me, it's more of like a mind puzzle or something like that. But I don't immediately jump, and they think that we jump to like UFOs immediately. It's like, no, I don't want, you know. It's like, I think anyone who's had a UFO experience, I know Rogan in the chat room was saying, talking about his thing, his experience, and it was kind of the same thing where he was like trying to figure out what it might be because, you know, the last thing he wanted, he wanted to be was a UFO. So I think they they get, they, they generalize and, and, uh, they they they've caricatured UFO enthusiasts and advocates. Uh, they paint them with their own sort of like brush uh, that is completely wrong too, which is crazy. Oh, of course. Well, again, I have had uh, on the few occasions when I have the kind of conversation we're having right now, but all uh, when I've had this with not every debunker, I've got some dear friends who are UFO debunkers, who are UFO skeptics, and who will say to me, you know, Michael, you are obviously intelligent about what you do and the way that you approach this subject. Um, that said, give us one case. Jason Bradley is one of my friends uh, among the skeptic camp who, who often says this. Give, you know, give me one case that really, to me, gives me some physical line of you know, thought or thread that I can follow. And, and that, that is a very good question, a very fair question. And, you know, again, it's like I can try and find all the people who just go, oh, Micah Hanks, you know, I read your book and I think you're smart or I think you're, you know, a moron or whatever, you know. Uh, I can find all the people who, who you know, either agree or disagree and choose which side I want to go and engage with, you know. For me, uh, having dialogue about these kind of things, and often with people who I don't share core or fundamental um, views or ideas, that's the most instructive and illustrative uh, learning experience throughout the broader UFO phenomena, and 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 Benal, I mean, come on, do we? Is it not time to really start breaking this down? It's like coming back to what you've been talking about at the beginning of the show. You said earlier in the evening, talking a little bit about uh, you know where's your evidence or not? You you didn't say where's your evidence. How did you word it? Where where's your you show your work? Show, show your, your work. work right? Show your work. Yeah. Yeah, and see that's the thing, as it relates to like disclosure. So many people have become so enthralled in this idea, and this is part of what the scope of the article I'd written for Coast to Coast that you referenced earlier. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the idea is, you know, with disclosure, I think some researchers, rather than doing good UFO research themselves, uh, what they have fallen back on is they, they'll speculate about what UFOs might be. They'll reference classic cases, and then they'll say the le- the rest – all the information that we need to fill out this, you know, puzzle and to complete our summary of what UFO reality is, the rest is being withheld by government. And therefore, what we have to do is we have to mobilize. We need to go to government. We need to get our officials. You know, we need to get Hillary Clinton when, if and when she's elected. You know, and if it's not her, then get Trump because those seem to be the two most viable options at this point, which aren't really <laughs> the left. only options left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, what a hell of a process of elimination this one was. <laughs> I digress. Point is, is we go to whoever and we petition them. We get them involved. And to her credit, by the way, Clinton has said that uh, if she is elected, that they will address the UFO phenomenon. I don't hold my breath thinking that there'll be any new information presented, because in my own estimation, you know, applying a bit of Bayesian logic and, and really, frankly, just I think the, you know the process of 
logical deduction to this. In likelihood, any information that has not been released to the public yet is because it is of high enough national security interest that those without a need to know do not need to know and therefore it won't be released. That's one likelihood, or the other likelihood, although there may be other possibilities, but the two likeliest scenarios are what I just said, or that no such information that the UFO advocate crowd, at least as far as the disclosure movement goes, the information that they're hoping for, hoping based on anecdotal evidence, which is far from proof, it may not exist at all. And if it doesn't exist, then we are farting in the wind, okay? Because if the evidence either doesn't exist or if it is of such national security interest, according to those in government with the need to know who make sure that that information doesn't trickle down to others, it will never be passed down to us via either circumstance, you see. And so, sure, there could be the chance that information does exist and it will be released, but that hadn't been the case yet. So logic would seem to dictate, based on the historical precedents set by past disclosures, at least as far as the U.S. government goes, I think with the Official Secrecy Act, the uh, British government's a little bit more forthcoming. And John Burroughs, by the way, to his credit also, uh, you know, a U.S. serviceman but who was stationed at uh, RAF Bentwaters and had been one of the men on the ground during that famous incident there that occurred in, in uh, 1980. Uh, he's seen, I think, a little more success appealing to the British government about various things. But again, I, I'm very convinced that whatever many of the UFO disclosure advocates are searching for, they will never get it from the American government through the processes of appealing via primarily Freedom of uh, Information Act, or FOIA requests. And therefore, I sometimes wonder if the broader case can't be made that the disclosure movement that many think is the substitute for ufology today, uh, if, if it's really not a, a, a kind of a detrimental thing to the ongoing study of UFOs. Because more and more bright thinkers who really have enough brains, I think, to really think through the UFO phenomena if they would just do it for themselves and not rely on the hope that government's just going to give them all the answers. I mean, do you go to your teacher and you say, if enough people in our classroom pressure this teacher for long enough, yeah. Yeah. he's going to release the answers to the, qu to the quiz, and we won't have to actually take the test. Well, she's going to give us the answers, and to hell with taking – that's not the way that works. Right, right. right. It's, it, in a lot of ways, the – the disclosure movement acts as the de facto PR arm of ufology, which is uh, one interesting way to look at it. If you dis, if you disregard the whole aspect that I think we both agree that it's kind of fruitless to try to get information from the government. At least they get the most uh, press and everything. They're sort of driving whatever the narrative of UFOs is now. And if they pivot it a little bit away from we want the government to give us the answers to we want this to be seriously studied. I think we could see some amazing effects, but they're they're barking up the wrong tree in a lot of ways. And what you were talking about earlier about the stuff missing or the stuff, well, I guess that's where my mind jumped to. It's like this stuff, if this is like aliens, um, this stuff is like so – it must have been so secret – that, like, they wouldn't even let some secretary write up the notes from these meetings and shit. So there's no way any of this stuff's, like, any of the really good stuff is out there that even a lot of people even know about. Do you know what I mean? Like, some dude in the 40s, some, if the MJ-12 is real and they all hung around and stuff, they maybe have, like, handwritten notes. It's like, this is a secret that probably got passed down by telephone game more than, uh, you know, big files and things like that. At least that's what I think. I can't imagine... 
you know, where where are the secretaries? Where are the secretaries from the 50s and 60s who can tell us what they typed up? You know, that's where that's we need a whistleblower from there. But I don't think I don't think they really put any of this shit down on paper. And I bet you people talk about like uh, you know Snowden and the other guy there. Uh, I forget his name. WikiLeaks and all that. And it's like I don't think they even I don't think they would ever even commit any like good like smoking gun stuff to even anything digital at this point. I mean, how, if it's that secret, if it's that crazy secret, like, I think that it's, it's like almost a, almost an oral history or something at this point. That's kind of what I'm I'm wondering about. As as you always have done, you're you're very, (laughs) you you bring the very most important questions to the forefront and you've done it again here, Benal, because if you, if you, Go back and you read what Stanton Friedman has written. See, Stanton, you know, I think really does think, and actually he'll even still say, I know he does, because I've talked with him about it recently. And actually you have too. Um, you know, Stan will, I mean, he, he says the aliens. I mean, he knows in his mind these are aliens. I'm not so sure that that's what we're dealing with. In fact, I think that much more like Valet would interpret this phenomenon, although I have certain issues with Valet's interpretations as well. I mean, I'm I'm skeptical of everybody despite them being people who have been so formative to my own thought about this. But, you know, um, I've never had the pleasure of meeting Valet. I know Greg Bishop did just recently. He and Red Pill got to go out and uh, actually meet him and talk with him pretty uh, extensively. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I've met and uh, hung out with Stanton Friedman a number of times, and we had, I mean, we had about a four-hour car drive up through the mountains of California together back in February, which included stopping for lunch and uh my God, I, I haven't got time to get into all the stuff that Stan and I were talking about that uh, that weekend. And there's stuff that he's never written about in books that, uh, frankly, some of it it's not, it doesn't relate to aliens or anything like that. It's stuff that has to do with the possible connections that certain players in the UFO field may have had to everything related to intelligence uh, operations, to misinformation, disinformation. I mean, the, these kind of things, which more and more to me are the really fascinating uh, you know aspects of all this. You know what roles do people play? But see, coming back to your question, and this idea of an oral history, this is very much something that Stanton talks about in his book uh, Top Secret Magic. That where he couldn't find documents that released the truth about aliens or something, he found evidence in the form of memorandums that indicated times which meetings were fairly explicitly, in some instances, stated during which certain officials, and some people who weren't officials at all, but which, although it was not commonly known or generally known or even really discussed even today very much, certain people who were allegedly involved in some of these UFO-related or tangently-related affairs did hold the proper clearances to have had the kind of involvement that Stanton has argued that they have. A quick a quick example of that is Donald Menzel, who had been the arch-UFO skeptic of his day. I own his book that he wrote on UFOs. He was one of the first good debunkers who came along, but I was shocked when I found that according to the documentation that Stanton had had in his possession for a number of years and hadn't really read between the lines and found out what it meant until many years later, sure enough, he'd found documentation in the National Archives that it, where, where Menzel, uh, uh, in fact, in one of these documents, this is incredible, Menzel is actually having a correspondence with John F. Kennedy, who at the time I believe had been on the board of of, of uh, trustees, I think, is what it was for Harvard University. And in order to be on that, you know, to hold that position, you had to pick an area of, of focus. And JFK's area of interest 
Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I told you this while we were down there in Dallas together, <laughs> touring the Ford Museum. His area of focus, Banal, had been astronomy. JFK. He'd been oh, wow. very interested. Yeah, he'd been. And this very is way before the. This is way before the uh, the announcement that they wanted to go to the moon. Presumably, right? Because he, he way before he, that. Way, okay. And, and way before, yeah, the memorandums in which he was talking with James Webb, who was the director of NASA at the time, and then another a couple of days later. There was another memorandum in which, in which he was discussing with the CIA director the memorandum he had sent to James Webb, and this is where he, in both of those sites, that we need to be able to be very careful in our joint uh, uh, Soviet-U.S. space program because we want to make sure that they don't perceive the unknowns as being evidence of us just trying to spy on their operations. And some have asserted that Kennedy had been referring to, when he said the unknowns, you know, he'd been referring to UFOs. And I think maybe in likelihood that he was. Um, although there may have been more information behind the scenes that we don't we don't understand or have access to that gave or that might help give a fuller picture or understanding of what he was referencing there. So coming back to Menzel, there were these descriptions of dialogue between Kennedy, who interestingly had this this interest in astronomy, uh, and and Donald Menzel, who again was just a physicist or astronomer, rather, and uh, well, a bit of both, actually. He's quite a learned and knowledgeable scientist of his day and really kind of the chief UFO arch-debunker in those early years. And yet, he is telling Kennedy that, Mr. Kennedy, if I could give you more information, I would, but my clearance doesn't allow for, for this or that. And so, sure enough, Stanton managed to retrieve from the National Archives these documents that show that Menzel had had the necessary clearance, which, interestingly, Stanton was exploring because... Menzel had been listed among this alleged group of 12, the, the MJ-12, you know. Now, there'll be some skeptic who'll listen to the show and say, and Mike is trying to bolster the claims of the MJ-12. See, I don't buy MJ-12 at all. So let's just be clear about it. No, I but don't, it's like a narrative thing. It's, you know, I don't, I don't mean it like literally when I mentioned it either. It's sort of like you yeah. need to reference. It's like those in the know, you know. They don't need to have a name, but it's like if you're going to try and make a point, you have to put <laughs> You know, well, like yeah. the Greg Bishop book, it defies language, so we have to add language to it. So for this instance, exactly. I think everyone knows we mean sort of MJ-12 as like a, a trope. But you know what's funny is that Stan, I brought this to Stanton's attention over lunch. I said, you know, Stan, you have to recognize, though, that some of these MJ-12 documents are bad. And he said, well, of course they are. He said, of course they're, some of them are fraudulent, you know. He says, you know, the thing is, though, is that there's also probably some good information in there as well. And I agree and I know that Dolan said the same thing. I, I think that Dolan says it a little bit more maybe in advocacy of MJ-12, but I think that we all agree that whatever MJ-12 is, the bulk of it cannot be taken as being you know, some sort of gospel truth, some sort of a revealed uh, fact. It, 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 the truth is that it's a, a misinformation campaign that was released that had some bits of truth, and, and that people like Stanton, through their hard work, have managed to actually find while tracing the various threads associated with MJ-12, despite his long-time advocacy of it, I mean, sure, it's true Donald Menzel had held the necessary clearances to have been involved with said alleged conspiratorial group. Um, what's interesting is that it, there's so little said about that, and that uh, I would recommend that people try something. This is a novel experiment. If you go on Wikipedia and you go to the page for MJ-12, read what they've got on the Wikipedia page right now. And then go over to the talk page and then go see what, for instance, people are saying on the talk page. They're discussing things, or rather, actually, I guess the talk page, it, uh, is, is it called talk or is it actually called discussion? It may be um, 
I'll try and pull up a Wikipedia page real quick while we're yeah, talking. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll try and look I'll it up while you're talking. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, here we go. Mjolnir, the Hammer of Thor. Okay. So yeah, it's at the top of the page. This is I don't know why Mjolnir came up. Okay, but we're going to look at the Hammer of Thor. So just bear with me. On this page, there's the article, and what I'm talking about is up in the top upper left hand corner of any Wikipedia page that you go to. You can you can first you can see the up in the upper left hand corner there is the puzzle piece globe, with the Wikipedia yeah, yeah. logo. Okay. It says article and then talk. Yes, exactly. So what people will want to do is to click the talk tab. So I would recommend first of all going to the Majestic Twelve page or the MJ Twelve documents page. Uh, do a search for that on Wikipedia and then read the article that's there now. Then go to the talk page and see what is right now. Uh, included among those who uh, are discussing various topics for possible inclusion in the broader article. But you go further over on the right side of the page, and you'll see there's the Read, Edit, New Section, and View History tab. If you go to the View History tabs, I recommend that people go back and look uh, maybe a few years back and see the various edits and changes to the Wikipedia article on MJ12 and look at all of the information for and against that was once included with the article, it's incredible. I mean, it's it's almost exhaustive, and yet for some reason it's been whittled down to a skeleton of the summary that once was. Now, why on a authoritative website, much of that information, skeptical though it was, why would that be removed? Because, I mean, that that's just it. See, I, I'm at a loss to understand why it is, is beneficial to, to remove so much information. There was at one time a very long substantive article that looked at both the fallacies as well as the factual data supporting MJ-12. You know, what, no matter what you believe, I mean, why remove the facts? Nobody seems to want to talk about Donald Menzel's clearance. You know, this, this kind of information is considered irrelevant by some people. To me, it's not. It doesn't prove MJ-12, but it's obviously one piece to the broader puzzle. So, as far as this oral history you're talking about, Benal, I'm pretty convinced that whether or not there was an MJ-12, whether or not there are even aliens or aircraft that were recovered, there are various top-secret projects that have involved individuals, and yeah, you're damn right. Information is kept off the books, whether that be in official records or even in the discussion on a civilian level on websites that would seek to address this kind of information from a historical standpoint. And it's very interesting to me that there's so little made available because really what are we doing, what are we harming by talking about it? Come on. Yeah, that's pretty strange. That's a that's a remarkable uh, thing to point out because it's amazing how small that article is. And it's like if it's just if if to to the people who don't believe it, it's just some myth. It's like then why you gotta then then tell us the, the myth, man? Like get get into all the details of it. There's no details in it. It's really amazing for such a iconic part of ufology that it's been reduced to like four paragraphs or something. It's uh. It's pretty crazy, but I guess there's these people like we get back to these skeptics. It's like there are people like that, that's their thing. They're, they're Wikipedia warriors who go through and fucking you know red red line all this stuff. Why well, I know, well, well you know because they're skeptics. It's ridiculous. Well, the thing is, is that you know I think that the great uh, the great poet, or rather I should say the great playwright Shakespeare, uh, he had been the very one who had said brevity is the soul of wit, and I understand that yes. Uh, in 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 our in our witticisms that we should try to be clear, coherent, and, and, and concise. 
Now, obviously, I'm anything but, and let's just face it, I ramble. <laughs> and people, there have been people, I don't get it very much anymore, but there were, when I began, you know, and I really started doing the podcasts and, and doing interviews and stuff, people would, there, there was a review written about one of my interviews that was titled Ramble On. You know, Micah Hanks doesn't seem to really know what he believes, and he just talks a lot. And I think over time, people who have listened to me enough have said, well, I don't think it's so much that he doesn't know what he believes. It's that Micah is withholding judgment in the absence of facts so as to try and come to a more logical and objective determination of what is actually being discussed. Furthermore, when Micah says a lot, as he has said himself on his shows, he has a lot to say because sometimes the amount of discussion that should be afforded these subjects uh, is necessary, and it should not be related or re- I'm sorry, relegated to a quick, concise little description. For instance, let me give you another example, and this one you know, kind of draws from politics. Last night, it was much ado made of the fact that, of course, after the Indiana primary, Donald Trump, not only in a surprise victory, uh, his victory led to withdrawal or suspension of the campaigns of Ted Cruz, and then today, following his, John Kasich, governor of Ohio. Right. But, of course, there was also that little fact that, oh, yes, Democratic frontrunner Hillary Clinton was beaten in the Indiana primary by Bernie Sanders. The Associated Press on their wire, which I was following, had about a paragraph that was written about this. And I thought, well, that's, <laughs> that's a really nice way to say as little as possible about Bernie Sanders. I don't know what possessed me a few minutes later to refresh the page. I refreshed the page. The paragraph written about Bernie Sanders. Is it gone now? (laughs) It wasn't gone, but banal, it had been reduced to a sentence. That was not the headline. That was was the article. Let's say as little as possible, because we recognize that people have the attention spans of goldfish, and that this TV culture has made it such that nobody... We'll sit. We want snack-sized, you know, information. We we can't deal. We can't process a novel or a book-length manuscript. We have to have it in seriously, not even a paragraph. We have to have it. Oh, it's phones, though, dude. It's not TVs. It's phones. I I'm as bad as as, uh, I'm actually more of the I'm I'm of the pad variety. I like the iPad, but it's you know it's taken over lives. (laughs) Kids. I get scared about kids, dude. They're you know I got a friend who's having kids soon. It's like. You got two things to worry about that I never thought you'd have to worry about, dude. Like, when are you going to let your kids get a cell phone, and when are you going to let them get a Facebook page? Because you're going to be—they're going to be on your ass like as soon as they know what these things are. And you're it's right. like I can't even imagine a world like that. But yeah, dude, it's—it's it's messing. I think you know. I, I'm sure you agree. It's like I think it's—it's it's causing some kind of evolution of the mind. I believe. And I'll probably sound like one of those crazy people like when TV first came along that was like, it's going to rot nope. your brain. But I do think it's really – it's quite it's quite a departure from the way people lived up until recently, you know? Oh, no. You're, Pros you're and absolutely cons. Right. Ca- carrying around all that information in your hand is great. But at the same time, it's like people's people's perceptions. That's really what it is. Their perceptions are going to get all fucked up, I think. Well, you're right. And, and, and I'll go ahead and tell you, you know, exactly how you're right. First of all – College universities, for instance, physics students, once were, were tasked with you know, remembering certain key equations and things like this. Now modern uh, academics uh, are, are, are talking about the fact that for proper instruction, with the availability and the accessibility of information at our fingertips, again, this is why I, ref- I refuse to call 
smartphones, a phone at all. They're, they are a portable, multifunction device. Yeah. There, is as much, there is as much technology on the smartphone that you carry in your pocket as there was on the space shuttle that took us to the moon. Think about that. In fact, there's probably more technology in the smartphone than there was on the space shuttle that took men to the moon. These and, and, and what it doesn't have innate to the device itself with the access via the World Wide Web, the reach of technology, we have the summation of human knowledge at our fingertips, which is why, again, not just the skeptics, but, but anybody, you know, I would say that you know, there's a difference between people who are, who are um, cynic skeptics, which actually I uh, call snarktics. Okay? <laughs> a skeptic is a person who questions and who, you, who goes on a fact-based uh, approach to trying to understand phenomena rather than just trusting their gut or belief. You know, and, and I always advocate skepticism. But you know, again, tell me if I'm wrong. Today, so much thanks to, I think, in part, the anonymity provided by the web, many dicks are not skeptics so much as they are cynical, you know, snarky bastards. They think that they have to demean and, and belittle and, and diminish and impugn people. And so what happens is I call, you know, these individuals snark dicks. Now, a snark dick doesn't necessarily have to be someone who is just trying to um, really present good data and better knowledge about. Because I'll find some people like, for instance, Brian Dunning, although he, he's maybe dipped a toe in the snarkticism camp. Generally, I find, for instance, Brian Dunning a skeptoid. His articles are uh, typically not as, as nasty, and he doesn't engage in as much character assassination and ad hominem attacks against individuals. He can definitely be a little bit uh, negative at times. Well, glass not... houses, Micah, glass houses. He... <laughs> uh, Micah, yes, exactly. Micah, uh, <laughs> Ryan Dunning yeah. can't, exactly, uh, can't exactly cast any stones on character assassination. No, he can't. And, you know, the truth is that he's only one among many in the skeptical community who really, I think, we'd say the same sort of thing. And you and I have talked about that over a couple of cocktails. That's certainly something we've discussed, I happen to know. But... But that said, you know, nonetheless, I still maintain that I think, you know, as far as the research he does, he has always tried to maintain a little bit of a better standard, I think, than some other skeptics. Now, I bring this all up because the whole thing is that it's intellectual one-upsmanship, not among just the skeptics. They're not the only ones guilty. The trolls that go on YouTube and that post on pages, the people who go on Facebook, the anonymity that the web has provided to people. You know, uh, it's liberating for them. And psychologically, they think that they can do anything and say anything that they want to. And if they can make people look bad, which bolsters their argument, of course, it's empowering to them. And they do it. Google is what has done that. And the accessibility of information by the World Wide Web, which is literally at our fingertips thanks to smartphone technologies and 3G or 4G, you know, networks where we can have access to that information at all corners of the globe at any time of day or night. Everyone thinks they're so much smarter. When, in fact, I think that our actual intelligence has diminished somewhat. You remember at the beginning of the article where you, or the uh, conversation where you said, you know, Micah, how do you memorize all this shit? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I play a game with my friends. We'll go out to dinner. I'll say, you guys fact check me. We'll talk about whatever you want to. You fact check me. You guys can use your smartphones and Google. I won't. Now, I'm not always right, but usually, yeah, people, they'll fact check me and find that typically when we – when I pick the subject and I relate the facts as I have <laughs> studied them, I'm usually right because I play a game with myself. 
More people these days, and studies show that people actually think they're smarter than they actually are because they rely so much on Google. It's very easy for someone who runs a website, and if, if, if they want to try and create or construct an argument against somebody else, they don't have to have that knowledge. You don't have to be a genius. All you have to be able to do is know how to use Google. And that's the thing. These technologies are very much fundamentally changing the way that we interact, the way our society and the structure of it uh, and, and our behavior within it, it's changing all of these things. Yeah, and the technology is, I don't know if it's making us less intelligent. Some would argue that. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think, however, it is making intelligence something that is less localized and something which is more uh, retrieved through the intermediary provided by technology, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, like I was saying earlier, I sound like the old man, like get off my lawn and stuff. But, like, it's un- unlike all these other forms of media and everything. This is like the in- an interactive thing. You know, that's why it's different from TV. Everything else is like passive entertainment. This is like people can go in and do shit, and that causes all kinds of uh, problems, like Mike is saying, these anonymous people. That's why I like people who use their <laughs> real names. You know, I have more respect huh. for them because uh, – you know, I put my name on this shit, you know, for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah, me too. And, yeah. and Benal, you know, on that point, by the way, buddy, there have been many times where I've kind of thought, you know, I'm, I've got a lot of interest outside of the kind of stuff we're talking about tonight, UFOs or whatever, you know. I've got a lot of interest in philosophy and science and history, you know, that I would even say maybe the majority of my interests fall well outside the purview of UFO discussion. I've become strangely, very strangely to me, best known for UFO stuff. And, uh, oh, yeah. Once you're in this, you get stuck with it. Look at, like, poor George Knapp. He's, like, you know, he's yeah. a legit Yo, journalist. He, yeah, he, and uh, he'll yeah. always be the UFO guy in Vegas and shit. Exactly. He'll always be the the crazy UFO journalist. I mean, the guy is one of the most serious journalists probably that has ever uh, taken the mantle of UFOs and tried to do anything serious with it. And uh, and made unique associations with the likes of Jacques Vallée and and Robert Bigelow. Exactly. And, and many others, oh yeah, which he's is funny outstanding. He's outstanding. People always, uh, you know, cut down on uh, on uh, Bigelow, for instance. Uh, you know, similarly here is a businessman and a guy who's really wanted to get to the bottom of all this. Puts his money where his mouth is in the most literal sense. You know, formed the National Institute for Discovery Sciences. Tries to get to the bottom of the UFO thing. Um. And people, of course, have demeaned and, uh, and uh, you know, tried to implicate him in every conspiracy you can imagine. You know, it's funny, Banal. You go and you talk to Stanton Friedman or Jacques Vallée or George Knapp. Any of them will tell you, oh, we like Bigelow quite a bit. He's, he's a great guy. He's a very serious researcher. But none of them have anything bad to say about Bigelow. And um, that's rather telling to me. I think, again, people – that's the other thing is that access to the web and access to information, whether or not verifiable – you know, or anything that might be credible. I think it has helped omit a kind of conspiratorial attitude among many people uh, that is not always founded in fact. In fact, it probably very seldom is founded in the actual fact of, of any given situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it has its its double-edged sword. It really is. It's uh, it's interesting. You know, if not for all this stuff, we wouldn't be doing this now. So it's like we. <laughs> We're like bite the hand that feeds us in a way, you know. So it's uh, it's been good and bad, but it's just uh, it's this unending march towards I don't even know what, being enveloped by technology and everything. It's crazy. Now we talked a little bit about this, the election and everything. I don't want to get too much into the election, but I 
made this you actually sort of planted a seed in my head tonight uh that i hadn't remembered or thought of uh so i want to like put it out there and see what you think too because you you watch the news as close as i do especially this ufo news and it's like i said i said for the last few days because i haven't, <laughs> haven't done the shows in january but i've been doing a bunch lately so i said uh, over the last few days that I feel like just based on how I've been seeing the UFO news this year, especially, I, we've already talked about how this Clinton thing's not going to, I don't think it's going to pan out. But now, the more I talk, uh, let me finish this thought and I'll kind of tie it all together. Um, yeah. I feel like we're in the midst of a big, I feel like now I've actually changed my opinion since, based on what <laughs> what you said earlier. So that's why I'm struggling a little bit. I think we're like at the beginning of sort of an uptick for UFO interest. I feel like it's we're right at the beginning, and this Clinton thing's kind of moving it along. And I've seen, I said uh, the other day, I saw two big articles, CNN. They interviewed a bunch of ufologists and stuff, I guess, and uh, Weekly Standard. Both did articles on UFOs, like within hours of each other on Friday. And it was like, okay, this is getting some pretty big mainstream appeal. And then um, having talked to you just now, I was reminded that next year is the anniversary, the Roswell anniversary, the essentially the anniversary of the birth of ufology, let's say. So I have a feeling that we're we're in the midst of like a build up to something next year that UFO UFO is going to be really hot next year. It's going to be if Clinton gets into office then they're definitely going to follow up on this thing and then that'll create some kind of news cycle on its own. So I feel like I feel like we're on the cusp of something but I don't. I, my hope is I'm not like this lunatic who's like, it's disclosure. It's not disclosure, folks. It's not disclosure. So don't, don't get your hopes up. But I feel like, who knows? Maybe it can move the needle, in a way that this gets taken seriously, or some kind of food for thought for those of us who think about this will be gained. You know what I mean? Like I feel like it's a it's a fantastic litmus test for how the rest of the world looks at all this shit. Because, because if the mainstream media is talking about it, then more more people who don't think about it will talk about it, and, may, and then, we'll, and then we'll, those of us who do think about it will be get a chance to see what see how the other half thinks, you know, which is more than the other half. It's like the uh, the other eighty percent of the world that don't give a fuck about UFOs. If, if the if the media starts talking about it, at least we'll get an idea about what what people think, you know. So that's a good thing. That's my hope and my feeling about you know, the next uh, year or so. What do you think, well, though? I mean, do you feel like UFOs are kind of on people's minds a little bit more than normal, maybe because of this Clinton thing or just because uh, more coverage or, or what? Well, it's kind of a kind of a funny situation. <laughs> um, to me, I think that uh, UFOs at one time were very much on people's minds. Uh, it seems that UFOs are, to us, to a certain extent, a little less on people's minds uh, generally today. But I think that for, um, but I think that for the modern era UFOs, maybe we've seen a little more interest lately. Um, it, it certainly says something when you've got one of your front runners, and, and this is what's weird to me. Um, maybe I should look a little bit more deeply, and and not presume. But when you have someone like Hillary Clinton, who is a a, a establishment front-running candidate. Right. She has um, a 50-50, you know, not taking into account all polls and all that shit. Just if, uh, she's, There's only two people, essentially, that are going to become president, Hillary Clinton or Bill, or uh, Hillary Clinton or, or Donald Trump. So it's like... It seems and for someone that, way, it's, that far along to be an advocate for UFOs is pretty revolutionary. 
And the fact that the, that this that she's not being derided. I mean, imagine if somebody like, um, you know, let's say that Kasich today, before he had dropped out, what if Kasich had come along and all of a sudden started saying, you know, we're going to start really looking into UFOs. I mean, remember how they treated Dennis Kucinich back in 2008? Exactly. Uh, Dennis Dennis Kucinich, you know, was was uh, at one time fairly vo- uh, vocal about the fact that he had seen a triangular-shaped UFO. Uh, he was friends with Shirley MacLaine, and uh, on the day of the birth of one of her children, uh, he had been there at the house and everything, and was. Uh, he said he stepped outside, and that he looked up, and that there was a triangle-shaped object covering over the home and everything, which he saw, and that he felt a weird spiritual connection to it. Uh, you know, I think Governor Bill Richardson of New Mexico had said that we, we really need to open up the Roswell files and get to the bottom of all this. There have been a lot of people. I mean, we could go down the list of different politicians who have been involved in the UFO thing. But what's funny is that there have been certain ones who weren't exactly mainstream candidates who were marginalized by virtue of talking about UFOs. Just to name a few others, since we are on the subject, you know, Jimmy Carter, of course, when he took office, went to then CIA director uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and said, you know, can I gain access to the CIA files on UFOs? He was told by Mr. Bush, uh, Mr. President, you don't have a need to know for that information. Barry Goldwater had done the same sort of a thing. Uh, I think that while he was a senator, uh, which was prior to his presidency, we also uh, had Gerald Ford, who had done the same sort of a thing. Uh, Richard Nixon, although never really on the record spoke about UFOs, it was said by those close to him that he had a small library at the White House in which it actually contained a number of books on UFOs. Bill Clinton, we know, went looking for information about UFOs and said that he wasn't able to actually gain access to anything like that. What Barack Obama says is that what he did find was pretty disappointing and that there's not a whole lot, uh, but but that Clinton, if she takes office, says that she will actually go and do what her husband did and maybe try and pick up where he left off and see what other information can be gleaned. Now, what's funny is, again, you look back through the years, somebody like one of the Clintons comes along and says, yeah, I looked for UFO information. We didn't find a whole lot, but yeah, we were very serious about it. Are they marginalized? Are they castigated? Are they treated poorly? For having an interest in something like that. You know, what's also interesting is that, you know, somebody like Trump, as crazy as people might consider Trump to be, not everybody thinks he's crazy, but a lot of people do, uh, you know, Trump doesn't seem to really explain or, or, or espouse much interest in UFOs at all. Bernie Sanders certainly doesn't. You know? No, he dismissed it. One. Uh, no one's even asked Trump about it. It's crazy. You'd think that that could get the media two days' worth of news. <laughs> I, I'm hoping that it We got, what, six months? I'm hoping that it has to come up somehow in the next six months, you know. I'm hoping, because I feel like, as crazy as it sounds, the only person that's going to get... Because the only people that talk really about this, the only people that really bring it up to Hillary Clinton are the are the entertainment media. It's like the regular straight media don't even bring it up. So it's like, maybe if Trump mentions it, it'll get some more traction, you know. But who knows? Yeah, who knows. But, you know, coming back to what you were talking about, you know, with regard to whether or not uh, there's more interest in UFOs, Again, it's just kind of funny that certain politicians might be, or scientists or whatever else, might be marginalized. But, you know, if you have a Neil deGrasse Tyson that comes out, or a Hillary Clinton, in other words, somebody with enough prominence, and they say, you know, maybe it's not all that it seems to be, but there could be something to this. Oh, my gosh, it's a great revelation all of a sudden. You know? Yeah. It really just shows how much of this is bullshit, really. People who think that based on well, your stature or you know your how many how many television shows you've been on. I've actually been treated like that myself. I've um been uh on at least one occasion dropped from an event that I was going to be speaking at. And I usually have a number of speaking engagements each year. 
I was dropped from one event because I, quote-unquote, had not been on television enough. And I'm thinking, if you think the people what? who talk about UFOs on the TV shows are the ones who are really in the know, then you're, well, that's one more reason I hope not to have to come back to your event, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, Jesus, that's just fucking lame. Well, oh my God. it just shows the stigmatization of this subject. You know, UFOs, again, if there is if there is any seriousness that is afforded this subject, I would just say banal. It's not really what we see on television. And uh, and again, I commend Hillary Clinton at very least for being someone who says, you know, look, UAP is the terminology that we use for this, and we're talking about serious scientific study of this, and also possibly the release of any kind of information that may be withheld by government. Look, that's not ancient aliens. That's not Giorgio out there saying that the you know, ancient aliens came to Earth and built mud pies, and you know, and that they're called the pyramids and therefore aliens. Right. You know. So much of what appears on these TV shows, there is just no credible evidence whatsoever to back up any of it. Now, about the ancient alien thing, by the same token, we might say that actually some science suggests that in ancient, well, again, our our universe is 13 billion years old. And over the course of the long period of time leading up to the advent of civilization as we know it here on Earth with humans, in likelihood, there were other civilizations, like ourselves maybe, maybe more intelligent than us, that have come and probably gone. We don't, we don't find any direct evidence of their continued existence, but there no doubt have been some that have come and gone elsewhere in our universe, and that yet will be to come and go, maybe well after we're gone. And at some point in our ancient history here on Earth, well before we ever came to any kind of cognizance or any kind of real fundamental uh, understanding, conscious interaction with our environment. In ancient times here on planet Earth, it very well may be that this planet was visited or that you know there was some sort of similar kind of an inquiry or quest for search for intelligent life by, again, ancient aliens that would be on par with some of our own inquiries in our search, ongoing search for extraterrestrial life today. So, Maybe in some ways we find justification for the ancient alien argument, but not so much in the ancient astronaut theories that we see espoused on television shows. And so, really, to me, if there's more or less UFO interest today, I really think we have to understand what is real serious scientific UFO interest versus fringe theories that are unfounded, if, if founded anything of any kind of fact or, or reality. And I'm, I feel bad, kind of, but all because I feel like I'm being just such a skeptic asshole tonight. But I mean, sometimes you just have to kind of realize. I mean, so much of this stuff, <laughs> you know, it's 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 pretty it's 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 pretty depressing how little fact and how little good information people are willing to work off of, and yet they base their entire lives and their entire ideologies and careers off of all this horseshit. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah, well, it's a scary thought because, you know, at the end of all these decades, we really don't know too much more about UFOs than we did at the beginning, you know. I know that uh, talk, I, I, you mentioned Rich, and Rich Rich Dolan, he he makes mm-hmm. the argument that we do know more, but based on, I think it was the Phil Glass thing that was, he said to somebody, once you, you know, you'll be in this your whole life and you won't know anymore by the time you die or something. And I tend to agree with Phil Glass in a sense. We don't really know much more than we did starting out as far as UFOs go. You know, we know there may be aliens out there, but that that comes courtesy of like mainstream science. So it's, you know, it's very it's very frustrating. That's why I don't know. I think we 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 need to change the approach somehow, or at least uh, get more more people thinking about it. I'm not sure. Now I mentioned earlier. I don't know how you do all this traveling. Do you have a 
Do you have a docket of dates you'll be appearing at different things? And how do you do it, dude? Because I, I think I would like... Well, you're a musician, too, so you're probably a little more used to, like, traveling to places and having shows and shit. But to me, it's like... For me, it's like, <laughs> it's like a big excursion, you know? The trip to Dallas took took a while for me to even be like, all right, I'm going to hotels this, I, I, I'll do all this, you know? It was, it was a traveling... Uh, it was a traveling nightmare for me. So how do you how do you handle all that? And do you have a list of uh, upcoming places where folks can uh, see you? I know you're you're doing something down in Asheville. Uh, I think it, in August I saw they posted it on the coast side. Uh, yep. Uh, last couple of days. But do you uh, give us give us the rundown? Well, yeah, uh, I've got a lot of events coming up, and you know you're right. Being a musician, I think over the years I've just been eased into. Uh, comfort. The first time I flew was not to go to a UFO event. It was actually with a bluegrass group called Bunkum Turnpike a number of years ago. We flew up Montana, and I remember we we had this band budget, and I have uh, and have continued to play for years now. This beautiful Martin HD28 LSV uh, acoustic dreadnought guitar, which is still my main axe as far as the acoustic stuff I do. And we bought a separate ticket. That guitar. Uh, you know, any of the other instruments would fit in the overhead compartments. That one was just a little too big, and we rented a bass when we got out there. So we had to buy a, a separate ticket for the guitar. <laughs> the guitar <laughs> wow. Isn't that insane? Yeah, that's so insane. So that was my first experience flying. Um, but uh, but that said, uh, yeah, I fly an awful lot now, and I do have a lot of events coming up. You know, here in just the next few uh, days, gosh, one week from today, um, the Paradigm Symposium begins. Now, I won't be there till Friday because I do have a event with my group, Nitrogress, on the Thursday night that the event begins. So I'll be a day late and a dollar short, as usual, but I'll be there nonetheless. Um, a little later in September this year, I'll be at the, uh, well, I'll actually be going on a cruise with David Hetcher Childress and Jason Martell. It's going to be a really fun thing called the Ancient Mysteries Cruise, uh, in which we look at a lot of you know, historical mysteries. I um, tend to gravitate more toward the historical kind of stuff than the ancient alien kind of stuff. And although uh, my colleagues, uh, Jason Martell and David Hetcher Childress, are popular from the Ancient Aliens program, we're kind of talking more about historical mysteries on this cruise, and it's really going to be kind of a fun time. Um, and this, that's going to be in September. And uh, hopefully by then we will be able to be and be well-equipped for avoiding the Zika virus, which is on everybody's mind. Oh, right yeah. in August, right here in Asheville in August, uh, George Norrie of Coast to Coast AM is going to be coming. He and Tom Danheiser and Lori and all the fine folks, they're coming down, and uh, we're going to be doing this event here in Asheville. Uh, and I'm really excited about this one because uh, in addition to uh, giving, uh, or it's not so much giving a lecture as it is, you know, George and I will be talking about what we, uh, you know, what, what, what I do as far as a UFO researcher and his purview uh, involves. Now, of course, I've been on his TV show. I've been on Coast to Coast with him a few times. Um, this is the first time George has been to my hometown, and I'm excited about that. But the other thing, too, is that uh, George said, you know, Micah, uh, I would like to sing some songs. Uh, yeah, I hear you're a guitar Yep, and uh, Yep, and he sure enough did figure it out. I am a guitar player, and he said, hey, i got a great idea. I want to run this by you. And uh, so that said, on August 27th here in Asheville, North Carolina, at the Diana Wortham Theater, not only will I be talking about UFOs with George Nori, but William R. Forstian, author of the book One Second After, he's an expert on EMPs. My old buddy Joshua P. Warren, who lives right here in town, will all three be there as the guests with George. 
and my band and I, as well as a <laughs> yeah, remarkable some music with George. Nice. We're going to be backing him up while he sings some songs, so it's going to be uh, interesting. That's going to be an unforgettable experience, yeah. That sounds cool. It'll be interesting in a good way. So, yeah, those are some of the events where people can find me this year and everything, and always looking forward to coming to a town where you may be. (laughs) There you go. And the the website, the main one, what's the the hub you like to send people to? Is it still Grailian Report or is it MicahHanks.com? What do you like? Both of those actually work. I did them both just now. I'll tell you what, Grailian Report, if people want to find my primary podcast, if you're interested in news, current events, and politics – one of the funnest shows I've done in a long time, and I'm doing it right now. A Middle Theory is a weekly podcast that deals with news, current events. We're covering the politics of the current election, so a lot of people don't know that I do that as well as the kind of unexplained and science stuff. So check out MiddleTheory.com as well. But if you want information about me, just go to MicahHanks.com. There you go. There you go. Well, we're closing in on the end here, man. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's been way, way overdue, and uh, I loved this conversation, man. I was, I was thinking already, like in the midst of it, I was like, my brain is like, <laughs> I, I can tell a good interview when I'm done, because afterwards my brain is still like firing on all these synapses and ideas and things. Are like, I feel like I, I feel like I ran a marathon with my brain. So, and then huh. uh, that's that's the that's the feeling I get from this conversation. So, I really, really loved it, and I. I think the folks will too. And like I said, way way overdue. And I'm really sorry it took so long to get you back on the show, man. But look, at I haven't done a show since January, so I'm I've been erratic as hell the last few years. So it's been good to uh, reconnect and get you back on the show. And I promise it will not be long before uh, we get you back again on the show. Hey, look, anytime, man. And you're right; it has been good to reconnect. And you know, I'm just fortunate. To, uh, I feel very fortunate that this show wasn't the first time. In recent times that you and I have been able to talk, you know, we've been in touch. We were able to get down to Texas and do the Paramania thing. You know, yeah. uh, the, just a few among the, the long lineage of adventures I'm sure we'll share throughout our lives. And so always good to be here. I know that really when I was getting started, you were really cool and, and awesome and had me on your show. And, uh, you know, to me, uh, it's not so much just, a, oh, when's he going to have me back on the show? It's like, oh, cool, I, I get to be back on with him. And uh, I'm very appreciative of that, and thank you. Well, man, I appreciate that. And you're, uh, well, you just had a birthday since Paramania, right? So you're like 31 now or 32? Oh, I'm 33. See, I'm older than oh, I look. Oh, ah. <laughs> I'm 37. So, well, I think uh, I, we're destined probably to be the old men of, uf- of ufology in like 20 years or 30 years, you know. Hopefully, <laughs> we'll see what kind of world we're living in then. But, you know, yeah. there's only... <laughs> There's only a few guys. Kutch is, Kutch is like 31, so he'll be he'll be right there with us. Yeah. We can keep param, we can keep Paramania going for decades at that at that rate. So we'll <laughs> well, exactly. well, yeah, yeah. We'll be in good shape. Is, I was I was so startled when I realized that Cutchin, Joshua Cutchin, for those of course who are listening, if you don't know him, check out his book, A Trojan Feast, uh, published by Anomalous Books. He's a great writer. Re- I mean, he's a really good writer. Um, and oh, I he's a great because, guy. He's a top-notch person he's just uh he's yeah. amazing i'm a huge catch fan anyway the british ladies thanking us and talking us down so thank you so much mike i really do appreciate it and uh i'll be in touch as the days go by you know that so uh have a great night and have fun in minnesota and all the uh further adventures and i'm sure uh, hopefully our paths cross before paramania too we'll see what happens you got it brother always a pleasure banal all right buddy have a good night good night All right, folks, there you go. That was Micah Hanks. Awesome conversation. Loved that. Like I said, uh, 
feel like I ran a marathon with my brain. Let me give the quick shout-out to the folks on the chat room. Chuck Brewer, also a paramaniac, talking about talk, – he's in the chat room. He's mentioning a men's room of a Texas bar. That's Chuck Brewer for you. Uh, Flap Doodle, Jim Lydica, Ray Toy, I think I said it right that time, also a paramaniac. Rojan, Steve Ray, Zach Copley, three uh, brothers in the uh, in the weird – brotherhood that is this uh, Dallas contingent and zero that so thanks to all the folks in the chat room lively chat room tonight uh, really really great folks and thanks to all the folks who tuned in tonight to the program uh, I guess that's it we're counting down here and she's going to cut us off the year in just a moment and I it's been two days oh that's what I was going to mention that I cut you off uh, when when Micah came back it's interesting having a show every night it's just kind of odd because I'll be thinking about something tomorrow, and it'll come up on the show. So if I had the energy, I would do, I would do a nightly show. But I'm already like, oh, my God, this is crazy. I've been doing so many shows in a row. So maybe I could see future marathons like this. Let me put it that way. I could definitely see future marathons like this because uh, it's been fun to sort of keep ideas growing over the course of, like, two, three, four conversations. So – uh, it's been really fun, and uh, don't expect any news tomorrow night when I finish the marathon as far as what's next, because I have no idea, but chances are we'll wrap up the marathon tomorrow night with Mike Cleland talking about owls, aliens, UFOs, all kinds of uh, strange experiences and stuff like that, and uh, then hopefully come back in a week or two with the season finale and then take some time, more time off. I know you're going to hate me for that, but more time off and come back with season 10. So that's kind of the plan. But all that said, we can worry about that after tomorrow night's show. Tomorrow night, Mike Cleland, uh, 10 p.m. Eastern time. That's about it. Thanks for all your support, guys. I guess if you're just listening to this and you haven't caught the marathon, let's do the plugs. You can find out more from the show at banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. Head on over to Facebook, punch it in, Banal of America. That's our Facebook page. Like us, you'll get information on the show there. Uh, if you can help us make some cashish on this program, because uh, we're doing four shows in a row, this is really uh, taking a bite out of my schedule, So, and it's also going to cost me some money. So if you can help us out, head on over to Banal of America, click the PayPal button. There's also a P.O. box if people want to mail uh, snail mail donations. And uh, with all that said... Let's call it a night until tomorrow night, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to the hardcore listeners who supported us for so very long. And thanks to the folks maybe who are just tuning in for the first time tonight. Dig into the Banal of America archive. We've got hundreds of interviews there with all kinds of folks from all over the world of esoterica and beyond. And uh, with all that said, thank you once again, folks, for listening. This is Tim Banal. Until tomorrow night, signing off.